And if it turns into like an absolute debacle, then we'll reassess the situation. Maybe we can uh, do it on another day. Yeah. Um, but but basically, um, lately I've been looking at um, uh, layer two technologies as well as on on top of Bitcoin and um, trying to achieve privacy, at least in the setting up. Of the of of the multi sig contract, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I'm starting to reach a point where it's like it's becoming a little bit depressing about the amount of fucking hoops one needs to jump through in Bitcoin to achieve like even a mediocre of privacy. And um, you know, during my explorations, your blog was one of the resources I came across. And uh, I started. Yeah, I thought, okay, this this, this fellow seems like this, this, you know, yeah, it sounds like he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Hopefully, it comes across that way. <laughs> so it would be great to hear your sort of background and. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, it comes across <laughs> <laughs> because of this bloody thing. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear your background and and how you got into this field specifically. Uh, um, I think I think you also had a, a bit of a background in Bitcoin, and now you've sort of moved to Monero or something like that. I'd love to hear the story. Bang on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like it's a relatively standard one initially. Um, I basically was working in information security, and that kind of had started me thinking about privacy a little bit, but um, not really too concerned with privacy, not really too concerned with cryptocurrency or what that could mean um hadn't really fallen down that rabbit hole yet and then towards the end of 2017 i think it was right after segwit 2x failed um i think that's the right one bitcoin's price i think dropped a little bit and coworkers were just talking about it um just talking about making money off of it they'd put some money into bitcoin before and uh kind of got me interested in the idea but purely just from that kind of number go up I want to make some money perspective seemed like an interesting kind of like a penny stock investment um something i could throw some money at and and see what happened and um yeah i got started right there right i guess it was right before bitcoin's big jump to 20k um and then it started crashing a bit and altcoins started running in like february of 2018 i think um and i just kind of dabbling getting into i mean i fell for all of the noob traps um I made a I made a Twitter thread that ended up being really popular a few weeks back, just kind of walking through all of the mistakes I made along the way, or not all of them, some of the mistakes I made along the way, getting into cryptocurrency, and um, I fell for all that. Uh, I can buy more of this coin, so it's going to make me more money, or it must be more interesting, or um, kind of fell for the the Litecoin as Bitcoin's testnet thing of like the value is in Litecoin, and since you can have more of it, it's going to be the it's the future. Um, Unfortunately, I did put some money into Tron at one point. I'm terribly ashamed of that. Um, <laughs> those were some dark days. Um, explored Verge a little bit. Uh, yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah. I went you far up there, man. I went way, way down the way down the dark, dark path of uh, 
scams essentially i mean really those are not there's nothing really interesting about those coins technically or fundamentally or anything really um but along the way i, I kind of started to figure out like hey like this stuff they have like these fancy white papers and i mean this was white paper season everybody had a white paper that described how their coin would take over the future and everything would change because of it um and so i started just kind of trying to take my technical background and dig through the white papers and see like is there anything to this um and the more i actually read and learned about these coins and these projects i just started to realize like they're massively pre-mined there's no real future for this like we don't need a supply chain coin like maybe blockchain has some vague usage and supply chains but like we don't need a coin for that and um started to kind of realize there's some good fundamental things in the space but there's also just a lot of trash and so i started to try to sift through and see where i ended up um and i made that inevitable curve of like bitcoin and then just into everything else and then coming back to bitcoin and starting to realize again I think there's something special here. Like there's something special about hard money. There's something special about a, a very secure network. Um, and at that time I thought there's something very special about privacy and at least pseudonymity. I mean, I, I kind of fell for the idea that Bitcoin provided strong privacy to people um, because I had heard about it being used in darknet markets and had seen some of the tools like Wasabi at that time, I think was a little bit more, circulating among the group that i followed and, and chatted with so started to see like hey i think we need privacy around this but like not really getting it uh, but digging it a little bit more and um just for fun as part of that i i got into mining just just i like the concept um, i've always loved physical hardware i've always loved building things um so i wanted to wanted to get into mining and kind of see what that was about um and at the time really all the all the profit was in Ethereum, and then Monero was a big, um, a big coin that you could mine at home. And at that point, it was GPU mined. Um, and so I got, I got a GPU rig. I paid so much money for that thing. It was like the height of mining fever. Um, I think I paid like I don't know six hundred dollars a GPU or something. It was ridiculous. Did you it make was, your money back though? I did actually. Amazingly, I, yeah. I stuck with it for a while, and I made it back in the long run. But that was only really because I didn't sell then, and so the coins that I kept along the way ended up being worth enough to get my money back. But it was certainly not yeah. the most profitable move. But I think the thing that uh, the thing that I learned was it was a really good chance to get into the technicals of projects and learn more about like what is mining, how does it work, how am I actually helping to secure the network. Um, it started up a lot of good conversations with people in real life and um it was the first time i really dove into a community uh just because i had no idea what i was doing so i jumped into the monero mining subreddit and um jumped into irc which the monero community loves irc for some reason even though it's a horribly ancient protocol but it works um don't don't dis irc <laughs> don't dis IRC. <laughs> i'm a i'm a matrix shill now so be prepared <laughs> I like what IRC has done, but I feel like Matrix is a lot more uh, a lot oh, more approachable okay. these days. But hey, it's bridged it's bridged with IRC, so okay. you IRC people can still hang out there. <laughs> no, I don't do IRC much these days. Actually, I don't do much chatting at all. Just like ir communities irritate me. Just generally, they irritate me. There's always retards. Even the good irritates. communities are it's stressful. Yeah, man. 
just dealing with, I mean, communities are hard, especially decentralized projects. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a mess nonstop. <laughs> I will say, though, like, the reason, the reason I ended up being interested in privacy at all, um, and I had, like, this vague notion of, like, hey, I want to be private, but I wasn't doing anything about it, um, using Facebook, using Twitter actively, not caring about anything that I did, using Windows, um, and the real reason I started to kind of fall down the privacy rabbit hole alongside cryptocurrency was because of the Monero community. Um, there were just a lot of people within the community that took me under their wing and kind of took the opportunity to walk me through like why privacy matters and like in a, at a far yeah. bigger scope than Monero. Like that, they were just saying like, yes, Monero has privacy, but they walked me through so much more about why privacy matters on an individual level, why it matters as a human right. Um, how it affects societies when there's a lack of privacy and yeah. it really helped me to start kind of like working my way through what does that mean for me? What does that mean for cryptocurrency? Um, and really started me kind of down the the path towards, I don't know what I would call myself, I guess a privacy advocate or just someone who's trying to learn and share along the way. But um, I think I've fallen more and more into the rabbit hole of privacy is extremely important and it is constantly being aggressively stripped away from us um and is trying to figure out yeah. what can i do to reclaim it for myself and what can i do to help others reclaim it for themselves too so yeah i, th I think i think to, to sum it up in a nice nice way like the, the there was a tweet from fluffy pony which was like when you go into the public bathrooms <laughs> and you and you sit down and you close the door behind there you close the door not because you're conspiring against the government. <laughs> it's because you want a bit of privacy as you take your shit on the pot, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean that, that sort of sums it up, really. <laughs> he has some great, uh, some great simplifications of what privacy uh, Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah. Uh, from time to time, so I'm sure it's rather South African. <laughs> crap. Yes, but. So rich people. There. Oh, did you? Sorry. Yep. We're okay. good now. We're good now. So, yeah, it's like I'm apologizing as as if it's my fault. <laughs> anyway, so what what I found is that I don't think I I, I really start to wonder whether uh, we will ever see Monero privacy levels reach Bitcoin, and I say this for this reason. Um rich people like to compare, have pissing contests with other rich people in the form of, look at my artwork, look at my, my series of vehicles, vintage vehicles, um, look, look, look at my properties, um, look how many Bitcoin I've got. So it's, it's basically this, um, this uh, you know, rare sort of essentially collectible that's sort of come into cyberspace, which, which, which makes it a lot easier for, for, for people in general, but especially rich people, because they can just sweep their profits into, into, uh, you know, onto, onto the Bitcoin, uh, into Bitcoin. So um, all round, all round, it just plays very well into the, you know, the modus operandi of rich people. But when it actually comes to, when it actually comes to like cash and spending stuff online, it, it's just not there. It's just not there. So, did you ever look into uh, building stuff on top of Bitcoin? 
or did you or were you just like still um, into the Monero stuff? Yeah, I mean, what's, I, your, thought, what's your thoughts on 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 that um, that 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 little thing I had to say about Bitcoin? I definitely I see that as the narrative that has overtaken Bitcoin. Um, I don't necessarily agree that that is what Bitcoin is fundamentally or what it has to be. Um, but I definitely think that 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 digital gold narrative, that hard capital cost narrative. Um, has kind of become the the rallying cry that Bitcoiners use to get institutional investors um, and regulators and financial institutions on board and interested in Bitcoin. Um, and to be completely honest, I feel like that that that's probably why Bitcoin is worth as much it is as it is today in in dollar terms. Um, and that's fine, but I I. I've said this a lot on Twitter and other places, but I, I don't think the world needs another investment vehicle. Like there are plenty of ways for us to put money into something and make money over the long term. Obviously, Bitcoin has outperformed everything over the last 10 years that it's been in existence, 12 years now. Um, and it's made a lot of people rich that wouldn't have been otherwise or that didn't have a lot of money and wouldn't have been like putting tons of money into a 401k over time or those kind of approaches to securing wealth long term. But I think I think the world loses something fundamental if Bitcoin continues to go down this digital gold path. Um, and I think it's it's sad because the network effect that Bitcoin has is so massive. And especially because the buy-in with financial institutions, banks, governments, like they're starting to get on board with the general concept. Um, there's a lot of negative that comes with that as well, as I talked about on Twitter today with the compliant mining pool. You're going to see a lot more talk about fungibility issues, a lot more compliant pools, compliant exchanges, um, compliant merchants, people who are unwilling to mine or transact with uh, Bitcoin that are deemed dirty or tainted. Um, but I think because of the network effect that Bitcoin has, it really has the potential to be a, a strong a strong change for good for the world. Um, but I don't see digital gold as something that will change the world for the better. It's At this point, it seems like it's just being co-opted back into the legacy banking system, back into regulators' hands, and it's just becoming another commodity that's going to be um, just absorbed, which I don't think is super helpful. And I don't think it has to be that way. I don't think Bitcoin was designed to be that, and I don't think that uh, it has to be that way. Yeah. So for, for you, you're referring to the fungibility aspect of, of Bitcoin in this, in this sense. Now, I, I, I asked this question like back many years ago, like, I don't know, 2011, 2012, when Bitcoin was still a bit of a novelty, right? Like we would like send loads of Bitcoin to each other just because we could, right? Um, I, I happened to throw away a hard drive with some Bitcoin on it. And uh, somebody mentioned to me, he said like, he said, it was Barry. He said, he said um, at what point does Bitcoin actually become, you know, what point does Bitcoin actually have to reach before you start to seriously consider going through the, the, the trash tip, right? Looking for that hard drive. And then at like, what price do you actually do it? You see what I mean? So Bitcoin, yeah, sure. It's, it's had a little bit of a tainted history. We can, we can prove that some Russian mafia, you know, 
did some dodgy shit with that Bitcoin. But it's still Bitcoin, right? And it's like, yeah, let's just do it. Let's just sweep it in there, even though we know, we even know there's an element of um, uh, dodginess associated with it. And I think, I mean, that flies in some scenarios. Like if you're just transacting with a cypherpunk who doesn't care, they're probably going to be fine. They're not going to care what the history of Bitcoin is. But the main places that people are using Bitcoin and engaging with it are centralized exchanges. Now they're through things like GBTC, which is um, just synthetic Bitcoin, at least at this point. Um, they're doing it with merchants who are doing chain analysis on incoming transactions. They're stacking sats through Cash App. Um, and they're doing all of these things through KYC entities that have regulatory pressure. And we've seen time and time again, I mean, I have I have a, a post on my blog that I, for a little bit of uh, shits and giggles called the Bitcoin fungibility graveyard, but it's, it's essentially, it, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, it is terrifying and interesting at the same time, but I've basically just been trying to compile instances where the lack of fungibility within Bitcoin has affected real people. Um, and so far I have, I think, 25 confirmed instances where people have either, and this is by no means exhaustive. I mean, these are the things that I've caught and then like some of my followers have caught on Twitter and Reddit and that kind of thing. So I'm sure there are many more instances of this happening, but these are the instances that, that I've specifically found and many able to confirm in one way or another. Um, but we're already seeing lots of people who are just trying to use Bitcoin sending it to an exchange, getting their account flagged at best, getting their account uh, completely closed, getting their Bitcoin confiscated. Um, we're seeing people who have had exchange accounts open for years. Eventually, three year, like one guy, I think it's three years later, he moved some funds that he had had on the exchange to join market, to do some coin joining on, on join market. And his account gets flagged, even though the Bitcoin that he actually used for that had been off the exchange for multiple years. Um, and we've seen, now we've seen like the compliant mining pool that mined its first block today. That's another fungibility issue where because one Bitcoin is not equal to one Bitcoin, there are differences because they each have a history. Um, we're seeing that now again, miners are going to start deciding this is a good transaction, this is a bad transaction, and I'm only going to mine the good transactions. Um, so I think there is this level that Bitcoin is fungible if you're transacting with the right person. But the problem is the protocol should be able to hide the history of outputs so that whoever you're transacting with doesn't matter. They shouldn't be able to tell, oh, this went through a uh, White House market or this went through some DNM back in the day. And I see you, you bought weed on a darknet market five years ago with this output and you're just moving it now to try to pay me. Uh, I'm actually going to freeze your account, I'm going to lock you out, and I'm going to need you to give me your KYC info, your bank records, all of this information to get your Bitcoin back. Um, and that, it just shouldn't be possible at the protocol level. Yeah. And it's something that can be fixed. It's something that can be fixed today. The tools, we have the tools. The tools have been tested for a long time, and like Monero, for instance. There are ways to fix it, but I, I think it's, to me, it's the biggest issue facing Bitcoin right now. Um, is fungibility because it affects so many aspects of what Bitcoin means, what you can do with Bitcoin, what you can't do with Bitcoin. Yeah. So one thing I'm, I, I'm, as I've gotten longer in the tooth, specifically with programming and whatnot, I always, I always look at something. And I think, okay, are we, 
are we as maybe maybe young software engineers maybe we get too eager about a problem you see and we start to rat rat hole on it we start to get you know because you know you know we, we've got to want to flex a bit of muscles here and we want to solve problems and we, we think up something that actually is a problem where actually it might not be a problem i'm also playing devil's advocate <laughs> so uh, um in in a case for example bitrex i know uh, i now no longer use bitrex because they pissed me off um, I, I was going to move in um, about oh, a rather large amount of, of freshly minted, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, what's it, I ICO, ICO Tezos coins. You know, they're, they're like generation zero, they're block zero, no history, fuck all history. And I was going to move it on to uh, Bittrex and they were like, they flagged my account and they were like, we want another history. We want another. I'm like, fuck you, bro. Fuck oh, off. World. It's got nothing to do with you. It's got absolutely nothing to do with you. Like, just just make the trade, damn it. And then and then yeah. So they they flagged that and they kicked me off the off the thing. So anyway, I went to Twitter and I started bitching and moaning. They they seem to uh, um, allow me back on, but yeah, that, that kind of stuff irritates the crap out of me so this is why i'm like yeah you know what like that you don't get a purer history than that um these people are going to do it anyway these trusted it's just trusted third parties just trusted third parties will be intimidated to do anything and if you can create like a, a, the, the similar sort of thing like an exchange like maybe bisque or or these sorts of uh, decentralized exchanges mm -hmm. that's the way of the future so like the whole, the whole Bitcoin fungibility thing just sort of like, poof, disappears. Because the real problem is, is, is those trusted third parties. I What's think, your opinion on this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest pain point at this point with fungibility issues. Uh, I mean, most of the time when people are experiencing problems, it's because they're using some centralized trusted third party that has regulatory pressure. And so they're, they're caving into that chain analysis that's only possible because Bitcoin's not private and because there's this lack of fungibility. So they're, they're caving into performing that analysis, flagging coins, reporting accounts, that kind of thing. Um, and cutting them out of the picture is extremely important. And that's important no matter if the protocol itself has fungibility or not. I mean, I, I just don't think there's nothing that centralized exchanges do that we need long-term, hopefully. I mean, they're a great on-ramp for new people into the space. Because let's be honest, like onboarding someone through BISC, something like that, it's possible. But where are most people coming in through? They're coming in through the Coinbase's, the um, the Krakens, all of the the bigger centralized exchanges that make it really easy for them to get in and buy some cryptocurrency and see the number go up, that kind of thing. Um, so that is definitely that's the main pain point for fungibility right now. Um, but I think the so let's circle back to the compliant mining thing. So when there's not fungibility at the base layer, at the, the base protocol, um, yes, you see lots of issues trying to interact with the real world. Real world, obviously in quotes, but trying to interact with the outside world outside of the Bitcoin protocol. Like you're trying to pay for something at a merchant, you're trying to cash out for fiat at an exchange. You obviously see those pain points because those are the really easy gates for regulators to push. Um, 
they already have pressure there. They already have really close ties with the banking system to decide if an exchange can or cannot bank. They have really easy ways to pressure those exchanges into doing what they want. So we're going to see the pressure there. But the part where I think we start to see fungibility as more than just a how can I use my Bitcoin in the regular world is when we start seeing issues like this compliant mining pool issue. Um, and this is something that I've been talking about for a while that a lot of people in the NARA community have been talking about for a while. Um, and some of the more privacy-focused Bitcoin community have been talking about. But it's this concept of a mining pool or a miner or a nation state that has a large amount of hash rate that decides, hey, I'm only going to mine transactions that I deem compliant. And they can only do this because they can see the history of every transaction in Bitcoin. Every output you try to spend, they can see the history of it. Hopefully, you've coin joined, you've used Whirlpool, you've used something like that to, to hide what happened before that, but you still have the history of the coin was coin joined. I mean, you can still tell that the output went through that process. And then what you did after that, if you don't properly use coin control, they could connect things back. Obviously, there's lots of possible issues, but um, that censorship is only possible because they can tell outputs apart, they can see output history. And so these pools have already started popping up. I think we've had three pools announced that they're going to be compliant pools. Um, and the one that mined its first block today uh, is run by Marathon Digital Holdings, which is, a, I think, a pretty big investment firm and, and mining company. Um, and they actually run the seventh largest mining pool in the world. And they enabled compliant mining today and started mining only compliant blocks, which their definition is basically that they won't mine like OFAC sanctioned transactions. They won't mine um, like known illicit transactions that are published by a government, specifically the US government. So they're going to just ignore those transactions. And if they remain a small portion of the network, ideally all that will do is just cause the people who are censored to pay a little bit more in fees and get into another block that another miner mines. Um, and that would be an ideal world. There's a small part of the hash rate. Bitcoin can just move on. At worst, people wait a little bit longer or pay a little bit more for transactions that they want to censor. Um, but there's also really interesting arguments to be made that anything from 10% up in hash rate, you start to see snowballing effects where the compliant pools can actually put pressure on the game theory of how Bitcoin mining works by threatening to orphan blocks, by threatening to only mine on blocks that are also compliant. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth on how effective this would be below 51%. Um, so that take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. There's some really good articles that I've shared and that I can send you uh, that kind of walk through the two scenarios. But um, best case, basically, these pools will try to censor transactions. If they start trying to orphan non-compliant blocks, there will be this back and forth that causes the network to swing back and forth between compliant and non-compliant miners, and will cause some hiccups in block creation and orphan blocks, that kind of thing. Um, worst case, these compliant mining pools get to 51%, and they have complete control of the network because they can start orphaning non-compliant blocks at will. And anyone who's a miner who has any financial incentivization, like if they need to make money at all for mining, they will have to go along and become compliant miners. And because of this lack of fungibility, this is actually possible and it, it could happen. I mean, like I mentioned, this is the seventh largest mining pool in the world. I'm not sure. Ex I think they mentioned something like 12% of the global hash rate is their goal. 
I'm not sure what it actually is right now. Um, so I, I could be off there, but it, that's happening, and it's happening because of that fungibility level. And so that, I think that's an interesting example of how fungibility can affect people even just trying to remain within the Bitcoin protocol. So like that could affect me trying to send you money through Bitcoin directly, wallet to wallet, no intermediary. It could affect us if, for instance, you have an address that's blacklisted. And I know you can just generate a new address, but they could also blacklist outputs and say, anytime that's spent, we're going to not mind that. There are other ways, but say they blacklist your address. I try to send to it because I want to donate to you. They censor that transaction. The, the scary thing is that's it's possible. It's already happening on the blockchain. Um, thankfully, it's a small percentage of the network at this point, but... I think that's a it's an interesting example of how fungibility can affect more than just when you try to go from bitcoin to the the real world the kind of day-to-day world that we live in yeah oh, scary stuff yeah scary stuff so during this this process of of um I, well anyway i'm trying i'm trying to create a a I hope we're good. All right, so I'm going to try to keep my face still to try to <laughs> reduce the diff that gets sent across Save across the, the, the wire. <laughs> Save the pixels. Okay, all right. So I'm currently in the process of, of creating a layer two technology, but I've decided to go against, go uh, uh, create an overlay over TCP IP to create a new sort of like um, uh, content-centric network or information-centric network. And then build all the stuff on top of that. So, so you do all your, your well, at the moment, it's just it's what, like, for example, coin joining and um, all of that stuff would be done on top of this, this uh, information, information centric networking protocol. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to privacy in Bitcoin, the only way I can see to sort of achieve this is I, I, need, re- I need ring signatures in Bitcoin. That ain't going to happen anytime soon, ever, in Bitcoin. Therefore, this means that I need to get ring signatures of something like Monero in order to bootstrap this, this, um, this um, hash timeline contract, like this multisig, to be able to you know, bootstrap into. So you start off in Monero land. You have a kind of decentralized BISC kind of thing with where there's only a Monero Bitcoin pair. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you start off with, with Monero, you, 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 you bootstrap this, this little contract, you start setting up the contracts, and then what will happen is that you end up in Bitcoin um, in, in a hash time, in, in this uh, in the layer two network. You then do all your uh, Bitcoin transactions via this, this uh, layer two, and then when you collapse back down, you end up with Monero again in your wallet. So essentially, you're piping through Monero, Monero's uh, ring signatures. And, and uh, like, this is the only... Of course, of course, when you're in... When you're in, um, when you're in the, the, the Bitcoin land, you're going to be using the Schnorr signatures, you know, Taproot and all that good stuff, um, which will make it quite difficult for you for others to see that you're actually in in uh, layer two land but yeah i, I th- can you can you think of anything that would that you know if, if, if it's just purely a bitcoin solution to achieve this level of 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 plausible deniability and and 
and privacy because like I'm struggling, man. I'm struggling. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the that's the reason. I mean, I started out as a Bitcoiner. I was a Bitcoiner for a long time, even when I was starting to work my way through Monero. When I was mining Monero, Bitcoin was 100 percent like that was my focus. That was what I was most interested in. Monero was just a way to make some money mining. But as I started to try to use Bitcoin more and more, I just realized it's it's next to impossible to achieve privacy in a way that's approachable for people. Um, it is possible to achieve privacy on Bitcoin. I think we've seen some good attempts like it was like Samurai Wallet, excellent. You can do really good coin joining through that. They have really good post-mix spending tools that help you to preserve the privacy that you gain after a Whirlpool round. But it's really hard to do anything outside of that, and it's hard to get into that system. It's extremely costly in time, um, in fees. There's just a lot there. So yeah, it's tricky. And I mean, even like you mentioned, wanting ring sigs in Bitcoin, you can't do that because you have a UTXO model in Bitcoin. It's like if you had ring signatures, the decoys you select are just going to be known spent later on down the line, and everyone's going to know which output is yours. Um, you could do, I mean, you could do like confidential transactions, and that would greatly aid Bitcoin privacy if we had confidential transactions on layer one, because then you can do like unequal amount input coin joins um you could do a lot of you can break a lot of the key heuristics by just having amounts hidden in bitcoin so that would be a huge step forward i mean that was proposed i think 2013 for bitcoin that was a long time ago um and it's i mean it it's never gonna happen um i would love to see it i think there's a course a core group of bitcoiners that are still pushing i would love to see it but i don't see that happening and i just don't there's not really a way to achieve privacy for the average person on Bitcoin. Um, and I think that's the main reasons I've kind of shifted towards Monero over the past couple of years. Because I've seen that Monero's approachable privacy, it's really easy for people to get on onboarded. You can use any wallet you want, and you're going to get the same privacy guarantees. You don't have to be restricted to just a single wallet. Um, and as I've learned more and more about Layer 2, because like I, w I was initially super excited about Lightning Network. Um, I tested it, I think starting in 2019, I started using it quite a lot, ran my own node, open channels, tried to do some routing, um, tested it out a good bit, bought some stickers. Um, <laughs> I, I love the concept and it, it, when it works, it feels amazing because it's, it's relatively private. It's obviously incredibly fast, even though like once you learn how finality works, you, there's no finality at the moment. You're just hoping that later on you can settle down and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of caveats, but it feels really great when it works. It provides much better privacy in some circumstances than base layer Bitcoin. Um, and there are a lot of caveats there, but it's a really fascinating network. There's a ton of brilliant people working on it. A lot of money being poured into Lightning Network. Um, so I love the idea of it, but I think the more that I saw how trying to build a layer two network on top of a expensive and non-private base layer, those problems just compound. I think a lot of times you hear people talking about how like Bitcoin base layer, it is what it is. It's not going to change. So we'll just build in all the things we need to fix later on in higher layers. But those layers security and oftentimes their privacy depend on the base layer. Um, so building those things on top don't just magically solve your problems. The problems still exist. You're just abstracting them a little bit, and you still have to settle back in the same way. Um, 
I would love to see Layer 2s built out on Monero or something similar, because it provides a much more approachable base, lower fees, better privacy. Um, it's a little bit more complex, because like you don't have hash time lock contracts in Monero. Um, there's a really good paper on how to do the Lightning Network anyways that has some different security trade-offs, because you don't have HTLCs. Um, but it'll so what do you have in state, then? So the proposal how, how, in... How do, you do, how do you do this on top of Monero? Yeah. The proposal in the paper is really interesting. So basically, um, so yeah, so there's basically two approaches to building out something like the Lightning Network. It's it's more generic than Lightning Network, but we can just use Lightning Network as an example. Um, the first approach is actually changing the signature aggregation method within Monero, changing the protocol to something called DLSAG instead of CLSAG. Um, and basically that would just allow you to create something resembling an HTLC and provide a similar approach to Bitcoin. Um, that, signature, that signature aggregation method has some other issues um, with linkability and would cause some potential fungibility issues. So it wasn't chosen. It's, it's an option, like we could change to it. Um, and we would have to find better solutions on how to resolve the other issues that come along with it. Um, but the other approach that was more recently proposed, I think it was November of 2020, um, is essentially using a form of proof of work to actually secure the channels. Um, and so your node does specific computations that are hard enough to overcome by an adversary with more compute that you would have time to close out the channel if it was being attacked. Um, there's definitely some security trade-offs there as opposed to using, as opposed to using HTLCs um, because you, you aren't guaranteed in the same way to be able to settle back to the base layer. If there was an attacker and you were offline, there's a chance if they had a ton of compute, they could use their compute and leverage it to steal the funds in the channel. So there's definitely some caveats there. Um, I haven't read the paper in a while, so I, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but it was the focus of it was how to do channel-based networks without changing the Monero protocol and without introducing any fungibility issues. So that, that could go live today. Like you could build that network on Monero right now. You don't need any protocol changes, nothing. Um, but obviously there's, there's different security trade-offs, so. Okay, so in, in that sort of attack scenario, I would deliberately try to engage with a, with a, a, a known wealthy individual, try to get into some sort of like a, 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 a transaction, and then I'd do some sort of like a, an attack on them by running like a, a proof of work attack on, on that layer, on, on, on L2 to, to try to sort of brute force my way through this. And, yeah. and compromise there. Okay. Yeah, basically that's the way that you could attempt to steal funds from channels. And I mean, the same caveats apply that you could you could use the private node, you could use private channels, you could have a reputation system for accepting or not accepting channels, um, that sort of thing. So there, there are other approaches to limiting those attacks, just like Lightning has those same approaches. I mean, there's a lot of existing problems on Lightning and normally the core solution is just use a private node with private channels, but that defeats a lot of the purpose of Lightning. Uh, if everybody's using private nodes and private channels, becomes this large permission network that likely just has a couple hubs. Um, 
which then strips the privacy and the censorship resistance if that happens. So. Yeah, no, you you would you would definitely want to have this sort of like a open open sort of network so I can be able to um, send stuff around. You know, net networking tends to behave in a much much more amenable and friendly way when when I can just access your identity and like send stuffs to you or your particular address if it's a point to point uh, communication system. Mm -hmm. So you you definitely want to keep those those uh, features in that system. And even in that scenario, like merchants, you know, you would just have a channel with them. Like if you regularly shop at five places, you could just have a private node, private channels, and you would just open channels with those merchants that you trust, or at least trust enough that you're not too worried. Um, so there are definitely still advantages, even if you used a wholly private node, private channel lightning network, you could still use it as just a peer to peer layer two and not this broad global network. But that does remove a lot of the helpfulness because then like you go to a new place how are you going to pay them you're going to sit there open a channel wait for it to settle on layer one get their information wait one moment <laughs> yeah. and then like oh but look how fast it was now yeah <laughs> now it's fast <laughs> yeah that wouldn't Fuck work very off, well <laughs> you have to plan everywhere you're going open your channels beforehand and yeah exactly yeah no, no, no. that would not be a fun that. world we definitely need a, a public layer two network at the core, yeah. at the very least, and then going to lie on other yeah. things. But, um, yeah. but yeah, yeah, those attack vectors are very different in that kind of network because it's essentially a a proof of work channel rather than an HTLC bound channel. So very yeah. different security assurances, and definitely not. Yeah. I would say HTLCs are preferable, but they're just they're not possible on Monero right now, and they're not possible without protocol changes. Um, what would need to happen to 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 uh, Monero's protocol for that to happen, for, for HTLCs to be brought into Monero? Um, the only approach I know of is implementing that DLSAG uh, signing method oh, within yeah. Monero, and that's what's used for the, the ring sig portion. Um, and you could do that. It The main reasons we wouldn't is, like I said, there are some issues with linkability within DLSAG and... It, it presents some other issues. And the other side one is we're trying in the Monero community to push towards a more scalable protocol. Um, I mean, that's Monero is constantly iterating, constantly trying to figure out how can we keep improving and keep becoming more efficient. And um, part of that is moving to a new signing mechanism. Uh, right now, the proposed one is Triptych, which will essentially be logarithmically scaling rather than linearly scaling as far as ring size goes. You can have far more decoys without actually increasing transaction size. And if you did DL SAG instead, because it's a it's an either or situation, like if you did DL SAG, um, you would still have that linear ring size scaling. So you would be very limited in, in what kind of per transaction anonymity set you could provide. And anonymity size is very nuanced topic, but it, it still would limit how each transaction could protect itself and in the future could cause some problems. So we definitely want to move to a more efficient signing method so that we can expand the ring size and provide more privacy to everybody on the network over time or just make it more efficient. The other approach is you could just barely bump ring size and have a much more efficient transaction. But Yeah. What's your, what's your outlook on, on L2 stuff now? Um, I think it's a, it's a hugely needed area of research. I think in every, I mean, I think I kind of fell into the Bitcoin cash camp for a while. Not like te technically, like I was never like working on Bitcoin yeah, cash or yeah. using it. 
but just the idea you love those scammers, that like, don't you? <laughs> I I have the more I talk about the things that I like in Monero, the more people start calling me a Bitcoin cash shill, just because there's there are definitely some similarities and concepts there. But I am not a Bitcoin cash person in any way. But the thing that I think I initially thought was we'll just do everything at L1, like. Once I got through Bitcoin, I realized like, hey, L1's not scalable. And I was like, oh, Lightning Network. But then I started to find all of the issues that Lightning Network has. And a lot of those are still just unresolved. And there's a lot of core potential issues. Um, I started going, well, let's just use L1 for everything. We'll just need a pretty scalable network and we'll make it work. But if these things achieve the scale that I'm sure all of us would love to see, it's just not, you can't have everyone doing their coffee transactions on a, a a base layer that has to be stored for all time by every network participant. Like it's just, it's not possible. So we need layer twos. Um, there's a lot of really good research going on. Obviously lightning network is the one that people know the, the best. Um, and it's the one that's the most in use. I would love to see it keep progressing. It feels like it's one of those things where it's like, it's going to be perfect just around the corner and it just keeps getting pushed out. Um, and just watching people go through, struggles trying to use it i mean just watching people on twitter constantly hitting all of these massive roadblocks in ux and having routing issues and having to deal with how different wallets handle things and different nodes handle things there's a lot of complexity there and i understand things don't move super quickly but i think ellen's been around for four years now um and it doesn't seem like there's been a ton of progress but there are a lot of really smart people working on it so i'm hopeful for that um there's obviously lots of other work going on, like uh, drive chains, state chains. There's a lot of interesting other approaches to layer twos. Um, and these are very different. They generally involve either burning funds or um, atomically, atomic swapping into the, the network. Drive chains are probably the one that's, it seems the most feasible, um, but it requires changes to the big What the hell are drive chains? Oh. <laughs> I should be more prepared to talk about them. Um, I'm just learning about them now myself. I'm trying to kind of figure out what other approaches there are outside of Lightning. Um, there is a really good podcast episode. I think it's the Unhashed podcast. Um, and Eric Wall and I think Ruben Sompson talked about Layer 2s across both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and I learned a lot of things that I had no idea existed because I, I, so I've heard, I heard of drive chains probably a year, year and a half ago. Um, and apparently they've been like, they've been being worked on for a long time, but they require some protocol changes to Bitcoin to work properly. I think it's BIP 300 and 301, if I remember correctly, have to be implemented. Um, but once they are, they can function as layer two networks where you deposit funds, and then they can do a lot of different things. Um, I think one of the most recent ones that looked very interesting was someone had created a Zcash drive chain. And so they had taken Zcash's privacy technology and put it into a drive chain network. And they were showing it off against Testnet, obviously, but they could deposit funds into the drive chain um, and then use them as if it was Zcash. They could shield funds, they could unshield funds, they could transfer them around within the drive chain. Um, I don't, I'm not well versed in the security assurances around drive chains and other chains like that. There's a lot of different uh, approaches that are being explored, but I don't think really are being built out. I think drive chains is probably the only one outside Lightning Network for Bitcoin 
that I know is like being actively explored and there are ways to implement it today. I think everything else pretty much is just in a um, kind of a research, like, hey, you could do this state, um, like state chains is another one. Um, trying to think of the others. But they basically provide different assurances, different ideals. They're they're more like a they're a side chain, not really a layer two. Um, like we think of Lightning Network as more of a layer two because you're locking Bitcoin in, but it's still Bitcoin at the base layer. You're just passing around IOUs, whereas a drive chain would be you're you're minting coins on a different chain by depositing Bitcoin. Um, and so it it has those different trade offs. You but you can have a totally different consensus mechanism. You can have totally different block times. You can have all of those changes. It just can't be like a a very advanced chain, as far as I know. Um, if you're going with something like that. And then in Ethereum, there's there's lots of work being done on potential side chains, um, potential layer two networks. A lot of that is only possible because of Ethereum's statefulness, because they have the EVM and smart contracts. You can do a lot more advanced um, layer twos, which is nice. Um, obviously, that comes with all the caveats that Ethereum has with scaling and uh, costliness and um, other centralization risks. But there's some really cool approaches being built out there, um, especially there's some some interesting privacy-focused layer twos being built out um, that could be pretty cool, but those couldn't really come to Bitcoin or Monero or anything like that because we don't have any kind of smart contract, no EVM, nothing like that. Um, so yeah, I, I try to stay up to up to date. I try to see what's going on. But like I said, I think Lightning Network is probably the one that's most viable today and definitely has the most resources behind it. Like a lot, a lot of resources behind it. Um, so I'm hopeful that that will continue to evolve and they'll work out the kinks and the, the research being done on, on the failings of Lightning Network will drive developers to find good solutions. Um, but I also, as I've talked about, I'm, I'm not sure layer twos work very well on Bitcoin when the security assurances rely on the Bitcoin base layer for settlement. Um, we can get into that if you want or, or not, but I do actually. Yeah, um, so this has been, I think, a, a recent trend. I've seen a lot of Bitcoiners talking about this concept that, especially when we had this big fee spike in Bitcoin, when all of the miners and I don't know how to pronounce the territory, so I'm not going to try, but all these miners in a certain area of China Shizhen. were shut down. There you go. That sounds, it sounds, sounds right. I'll go with that. Sounds um, legit. Or oh, Xinjiang. <laughs> I don't know which one. That sounds like how I think it should be pronounced but I won't copy you. Um, but yeah, when that territory was shut down for an inspection, I guess was the end result of what was happening. Um, and all those miners got shut down. We lost 25 to 30% of the Bitcoin hash rate and fees obviously went through the roof. There was, I was constantly looking, there were like eight, 850 megabytes of transactions piled up just waiting to be, to be mined and included in blocks. Fees were like 150 sats per V-byte. 200 250 there, there were a lot of a lot of issues with people getting transactions through um and as part of that i saw a lot of people shift this narrative that bitcoin fees are going to perpetually go up like they will always be rising um and there's something to be said for the narrative as truth because bitcoin's base layer relies on transaction fees long term for network security there will be no block subsidy later on down the road obviously that's a long ways out that's probably beyond our lifetimes but that is the, the security assurances of the network rely on fees 100% down the line. And because of that, you need a strong fee market. 
how much you need in fees is obviously the part where it's hard to say what will be necessary down the line. Um, but as part of that, and as part of the, in my opinion, artificially restricted block size, you have quite high fees on the base layer already. Um, and in my opinion, it's pretty early. So having those high fees, you try to build a layer two network on it, but these layer twos, like I'll just use lightning network as an example. These layer two networks rely on settling back to the base layer to resolve disputes. Um, the base layer acts as the arbitrator for anybody that's having an issue with layer two, um, which is great when you can settle and when settling is cheap. Um, there's been some really interesting research. A recent paper came out about the Lightning Network that proposes an attack where you can actually, using the current parameters of the Lightning Network, and these can change, and they're also implementation dependent, um, but using the current parameters of the Lightning Network, you can essentially force someone's node to try to settle back to the base layer to resolve disputes so many times that they fill up block space because you attack multiple nodes at once. You can attack so many that they fill up the block space and the fees that they've set up in advance to pay for closing the channel in case of a dispute are not enough to pay for it anymore. And the attacker can wait and can publish a transaction that pays for the parent and takes the funds on the channel. So it's essentially a method where you can DOS a set of nodes by filling up block space and then steal funds because they can't settle back. They literally cannot, not even, it's not even a fee problem, but they just literally cannot settle back to the base layer because you fill blocks. Um, and as I was going through that, I, I was a little late to the paper. I think it's a few months old now, but as I was going through that, it was when this big fee spike hit and I started to think about the implications of lightning security if the fee market in Bitcoin is extremely high. Um, and like during this fee market, it was consistently... I, I would I should have done the numbers on how much it would cost to actually close a non-cooperative channel during that fee crisis. Um, I'm not sure exactly how much it would be, but it got me thinking more about how things actually work when you have a very high fee base layer and you're using it for a layer two. And just as an example, let's say you have a thousand dollar channel and settling back to the base layer costs a hundred dollars right now okay, you'll eat that cost to get back your $1,000 in case of someone attacking your channel or your node. That's fine. You get $900 back. But what happens when fees continue to rise, your Bitcoin is still locked in lightning and fees get so high that the cost to settle the non-cooperative close is more than the amount in the channel or even just a significant portion. Is it worth it for you to close the channel at that point? No. Because if you're going to have to pay more funds than you're going to get back, through the channel close, those funds are either going to be locked in that channel forever, unless fees drop again, or the person who's attacking you is going to steal the funds because they can use the funds within the channel to reimburse themselves. But most likely, they'll just the funds will just sit in a locked channel and you won't be able to use them. Um, and a lot of the security assurances of Lightning rely on that ability to settle back to the base layer effectively and quickly in order to keep your funds your funds. Because... As we know, within Lightning Network, you're passing around IOUs and you're opening this channel that involves some trust with the other person, the other node on the other end. And if things go bad, your only recourse is to settle back to the base layer and do that non-cooperative close. There's an old saying, time and tide waits for no man. And um, when, when L2 developers, they start des designing these systems, it's almost like they see they see the 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 
the variations, the tidal fee, the fee tidal movements of Bitcoin mm -hmm. as the thing which is undesirable. Whereas this is the actual thing that's needed. It's required. You need to have that fee pressure. And, um, and this is something that sort of became more transparent or uh, um, clear to me after the discussion I had with Eric Voskul. Um, are you familiar with this fella? A bit, yeah. Um, I don't follow him very closely. Okay, listen to it a little bit. Okay, this is a fella you want to you want to become um, like I won't say intimate with, <laughs> <laughs> but you can get as intimate as you can with this familiar guy. Familiar with, we'll <laughs> say familiar a, with. He's released a book called <laughs> Familiar. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> um, yeah, he's he's re, he's re released a book called Crypto Economics, uh, which which basically goes into the fallacies and all sorts of like you know the fad and bullshit around around Bitcoin. But one thing he did mention during this discussion I had with him was, um, um, yeah, fee pre fee pressure needs to be exerted upwards into into the L two layer. Otherwise, L two just becomes a shit coin. It has to happen. You need to have that security that goes into it. This is the thing that makes lightning useful. It's what makes it precious. I mean, in the sense that you can collapse down. Now, now, yeah, sure, you're going to have you're going to have um, variations in the fee price, but that just introduces a concept of like a predator prey cycle. I'm sure you're familiar with a predator prey, right? Mm -hmm. So you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, fees are pretty high. Not a good time to open up a contract, and and you know when, when they are when they when when they're low is when you start to do all your all your uh, creations and collapsing of contracts, right? Mm -hmm. So you know that adds a new dynamic into the market. I, I don't see that this argument as something that's negative because hmm. you need the security. So. Lightning and L2 needs to adjust to that. It, it, time and tide waits for no man. That's what I mean. The boats are going to sail when the tide is high. Or in this case, when it's low. Yeah, and I definitely agree. I mean, that the Lightning Network relies on the base layer for security. Like, that is, that's the security assurances. Yeah. Is you can settle back to the base layer. But if, there, if this tide keeps going up like this and just keeps going up, you reach a point where you have lots of orphan channels, essentially, that can't be closed out unless you do have some kind of fee event where suddenly fees are zero or low. But if they keep rising infinitely, as in some cases they need to rise forever because they have to replace the block subsidy over time, then the layer two becomes so costly to get onto or to resolve disputes on. How can you, how can you use it? I mean, I know that, that you need the security somewhere, but I think there's also this concept where people see fees as needing to be super high because that's the only way to get security. But fees, in my opinion, are really, they're, okay. a, they're a spam prevention measure. They don't need to be excessively high. They need to be high enough that someone can't just produce spam and not have to pay for it in some substantial way. Okay. And, and, then, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and I, the other aspect of what... Uh, Eric Voskul introduced to me is that Bitcoin is a black market money. Hmm. It is a black market. It's designed to operate uh, in, in the in this in the state where, where, where there's state 
it's designed to operate in a situation where the state is out to attack it. Yeah. Um, it thrives in that environment. So like um, when, when Bitcoin gets popular, obviously the fees are going to go up. Mm-hmm. Obviously the fees are going to go up because there's a lot more demand for it. So, uh, but, but that also puts competitive pressure on, 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 state, on state monopoly money or whatever, you know, CBDCs of the future, whatever it might be. So, you know, there's always a way to sort of opt out of those systems now. So, again, we're going to introduce another predator-prey cycle or just an oscillation that's going to happen um, because of this dynamic between the state money and, and Bitcoin. So, I don't think it's going to go up infinitely because if it does keep going up infinitely, that means the state is is on constant attack and the and the state cannot be on constant attack because eventually it's just going to run out of resources it's going to print it's going to print their money to oblivion like in zimbabwe and and everybody's going to be in bitcoin at that stage and then by that time you know uh well people will make a plan eh? people will make a plan it's i mean now, now we're starting to extrapolate quite far into the future there yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely tricky. I mean, I think I definitely have different ideas of what a base layer needs to be to be effective. Um, and I definitely, I I don't know. I generally disagree with this idea of like hyper-Bitcoinization, that like it's going to force states to change their ways because of the price increase or because of it sucking in so many assets and so much energy that it will just become this thing that, destroys the state or at least cripples the state and makes it do what we want and i just i don't see that as a viable future and i think that changes a lot of assumptions that i have about what a layer one needs to be because of that um and i definitely i I see where you're coming from i definitely see that idea that if the price just continues to increase forever it's going to Something has to give if the dollar price of bitcoin just keeps going up something's going to to die out or we're just going to have a new set of rulers who are all the people who got into Bitcoin early, which would be interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that'd be a good dodge. or bad thing. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna walk past that one. Um, but I think I think a lot of it just stems from a different worldview, and I think that I see that a lot in the Monero community compared to the Bitcoin communities. I think there's a lot more of this ethos of crypto anarchy and this idea that we need to build digital states and digital communities that can exist despite the government being oppressive and despite the government wanting to shut us down and despite the government wanting complete control and complete surveillance. So we're, I think the Monero community is more focused and obviously I'm speaking for a community that has differing views. So there are going to be people that fall on both sides, but like, I'll, I'll just speak to my specific ethos, but my ideal is what we need out of a cryptocurrency is we need something that allows us to transact, trade, pass value in a way that the state cannot surveil or stop. And those are the focuses. I don't think we need this thing that the dollar value goes up all the time. I don't think that there's a way that Bitcoin just destroys the state or a cryptocurrency destroys the state. I don't think that they would allow that to happen. And I think they have the tools that they need to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I think my obviously differing view is more of a crypto anarchy view of we need to build tools that allow us to subvert the state underneath when necessary. I mean, there 
can be good states. There have been good governments over time. But when necessary, we need to have the tools at hand to do what we need to do despite attempted censorship, despite attempted surveillance, um, and despite attempted crackdowns. And that really, it changes the assumptions you make about a layer one. Because then you shift to, hey, privacy is privacy is the most important thing. Because if you have privacy, you have fungibility. If you have privacy and fungibility, you have something that cannot be censored because you can't tell one transaction apart from another. So even if the state is the only miner, they can't tell what a transaction is. So they can't even censor at that level. So you, you automatically cut out this whole idea of like compliant miners, this whole idea of censorship by the network. Obviously, you could still have censorship at a, like a trusted third party level. Like the government could say no business is allowed to transact in Monero. Um, and that's something they could do. And that would be obviously that would be a, a detriment to the use case of Monero, probably a detriment to the price, but that wouldn't stop the tool from working. That would just make the tool something that is a dark, like a black market money, like you were talking about Bitcoin. It's something that thrives and does well and survives when the government tries to crack down and prevent its use. It will survive and it'll go on. It's not going to destroy the state, but it's going to allow the people who see what's going on to have a way to opt out. Um, and so I think it that view changes a lot of assumptions you make about a layer one and about a layer two and et cetera, et cetera. You're absolutely right. So, but but also, you know, as part of the show, I do need to have an element of 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 devil's advocate. I really do. Yeah. No, I love so, that. So, uh, it, it kind of keeps the you know like uh, new spices coming in. But but that this is fundamentally the the approach that I'm looking at, and and I can tell you, I've I've had like real world experience from this because I've as I've mentioned, I've I've just implemented a protocol which which is designed to replace internet, you know, IP. Um, yeah. And as a result, you know, when when you start when you start designing these protocols from from an initial you know uh, uh, grab bag of things like security being one of them, um, when you when you realize that the current TCP/IP internet that we use has like zero fuck all security, it's like it's quicksand. It's freaking quicksand. So this is why, like, you know, crackers, hackers are having a field day in current internet at the moment because all security is just patched on. So the same thing would be happening if if Bitcoin were to have fungibility patched onto it. Mm -hmm. It has to be done at layer one. Um, um, Otherwise, it's just going to be like what what I refer to as an architectural bug. And an architectural bug is just going to, it basically, it becomes like this like massive crack in your architecture that breeds bugs. And you, for the rest of your life, you spend, you know, stomping on these little cockroaches that, that, that come out of the system, whereas you should just fix the architectural bug, yeah. which is the, the fungibility stuff. And as a result, you know, you can build your clean citadels on top of that. Um, that are cockroach free, damn it. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, so this is also uh, the, the other reason why is because I realized that, that there is no security at TCP IP level, which is layer one level in this, for, in my particular protocol stack. Um, and anything you do, anything you do is just going to become more complex. Uh, even Zoom is, is, is a good example of this. Like, you know, they built it on top of TCP, IP, or UDP, probably. I don't know what the, the stack is. But 
you saw how often they had these different security problems. Mm -hmm. Again, it's always patched on. So, no, you've seen the same thing. I was just going to say, you've seen the same thing with privacy too. I mean, this is why we've had this continual struggle with privacy and the internet is it was designed from the ground up to not be private. And that wasn't a consideration when it was built out, but it's something we've tried to patch on and patch on and patch on. And it's, it's been tricky and we're, I mean, it's still, it's still a battle. Yeah. So, so I was like, Oh, well, fuck it. Then I'm just going to go to layer one again, start with a new layer one and then build up from there. Um, it's, it's the only way to do it in my, in my books. Then when, when you do get a bug, it's a single bug that you patch on layer one that fixes the problem for everybody on, it built on top of you. So it, it's, just, it's just the right way to do it. Um, and, you know, getting, well, the thing is, I don't want to be so defeatist about Bitcoin, getting changes into Bitcoin, because I think it's possible to happen. The thing is, and I wonder if it's just being co-opted by rich people now. Yeah, I mean, that's the tricky part is it's, it's code, like... People talk about this like immaculate yeah. conception thing and like it's it's immutable like we can't change it but it's at the end of the day it's code we can change the code we can make it into something that does what we need and there are already things that have been proposed in the past for bitcoin that can resolve these core issues i mean the, the core one being privacy and punchability and monero has implemented many of those things that were originally proposed for bitcoin it can be done i think the problem is now you have to shift the narrative and you have to shift community sentiment and you have to shift now you have to shift all the institutional investors that people were begging to get into bitcoin for years yeah. and you have to shift the banks and you have to shift these regulated exchanges to go along with this idea of implementing privacy at the base layer and none of those people want that like cypherpunks want privacy regular people normally don't want privacy they need it they deserve it it's a right but normally they don't care that they don't want it. And the government and regulated exchanges and businesses and, and not businesses and banks, Nobody wants it. they don't want privacy because when it's transparent, it allows them much easier control. It allows them surveillance, simple surveillance. I mean, in, in blockchains, even easier surveillance than in a lot of other cases, not always, but because it's a permanent immutable ledger, they have this transaction history. They can constantly be working on new approaches to crack and to come up with ways to, to find privacy flaws later on too. And yeah, it just becomes this, this thing that is moving so fast towards what I like to call like this number go up narrative that it's really hard to change the course of that ship at this point into a more cypherpunk, more privacy centric protocol. Um, and I mean, really anyone you talk to in the mineral community, almost all of them started out in Bitcoin and then just became disillusioned with the inability to get core changes done and moved on. Like, and many of them are still big Bitcoin fans. They hold Bitcoin. They use Bitcoin. They advocate for changes. I mean, like you, I know you interviewed Fluffy Pony. He's working on the Lightning Network now, and he's he's stayed true to trying to change Bitcoin and trying to do what's necessary to to keep it afloat. Um, and I admire that. I personally, I yeah. I mean, I've I have that defeatist attitude about Bitcoin. I don't see the changes happening at layer one that I think need to happen. Um, but there are great people still working on it. I mean, Samurai Wallet and the whole community around them, I think are really admirable. I think they've taken it upon themselves to try to do whatever they can to, to change narratives and to push, to push the need for privacy at layer one. And they've built out cool tools like pay that could be implemented at layer one. And 
um, in more wallets. I mean, that it's implemented on top of layer one, but it could be implemented in more wallets. Um, so there are still people working on it, but yeah, I just, I think the narrative of people who stood to gain a lot, they drove this narrative of we can make the number go up. We need institutional investors. We need banks on board. We need the state to, to love Bitcoin and then number will go up and they sold a narrative that made them wealthy and it, it worked. Um, I mean, the narrative was brilliant if you wanted Bitcoin's price to go up over time. But I think along the way, we lost something that Bitcoin could have been um, and hopefully still will be. I mean, I would, I say this all the time too, like I would love it if we did not need Monero and Bitcoin was changed to be what we needed and we could harness the massive network effect and social impact and name recognition that Bitcoin has and then change it into a tool that the world needs, which is private, fungible money. I just don't, I don't know that that's going to happen. But if it does, I would love that. I will, I would, I mean, I would ditch Monero. I would jump on the Bitcoin train because obviously if you couple network effects with a strong protocol, you get a very powerful thing. But I think right now you have network effects latched on to what is a, an outdated and from a privacy perspective, broken protocol that you can patch some stuff onto app layer and second layer, but you're always going to be fighting this battle with the protocol itself. And you're fighting all of these attack vectors that are open because the protocol has these flaws. And I think it's, it's only going to get harder and harder to do anything that is remotely cypherpunk on Bitcoin as time progresses, but I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there are times where I fantasize of just, it would be lovely if all the Monero guys, all the cypherpunks that have been disillusioned with Bitcoin, you know, if we could just sort of like transplant them chip, chip, <laughs> and say, okay, okay, you guys are now in control of Bitcoin. <laughs> I, I, I'd really like to see that, you know, uh, and, and it would be some sort of like body which, which, which really does have a sort of weight in decision making, uh, along with the miners as well as the the, the stakeholders of, of Bitcoin and whatnot. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. And, and as, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Huh. Let's go into the graveyard thing. Yeah. Now, what, what inspired you to, to, to create this graveyard? And what is it, first of all? And this is another devil's advocate, sort of like introductory, I'm being a host question. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a concept I've been kind of thinking about for a while talking with other people in in bitcoin and monero and um just as i kind of wrestled with what what fungibility means because i mean it's this is this word and concept that just no like no one knows what fungibility is like you try to tell someone you run into on the street like hey do you know what fungibility is like no one knows no one cares because you don't have to worry about fungibility with government money because the government just says this is fungible and if you decide you don't want it to be fungible, you can't change that unless you change the government. So it's something where like they can just enforce fungibility through law, through military, through whatever they want. And so people just haven't had to deal with this idea of like something that's the same isn't actually the same. Like, how does that work? Um, and so I think I, I wanted to be able to convey more clearly to people what a lack of fungibility means in the real world. Um, and as more and more issues started popping up around Bitcoin, and these have, I mean, they've really accelerated over the past six months even. Um, I, let me see, I made it initially at the end of March. So it's been 
not even two months yet. Um, and have 25 different instances of, of people being affected by a lack of fungibility or by the Bitcoin blockchain being affected by it. Um, but the post is just, it, the goal is not to say like, Bitcoin is doomed, Bitcoin sucks, that's not going to happen, it's not going to work. The goal is to just open people's eyes to the issues. And I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate win would be if enough Bitcoiners saw, not my post, but just the general idea of fungibility as important and said, we need to do something about this. And so uh, the, the real goal is uh, just to, to bring it in front of people and to let them see like, hey, like, yes, you don't know what this word means. Or yes, you've like heard people, the Monero community whisper fungibility in like every chat room that there's a Monero <laughs> guy. Because we're that, that crazy person who just jumps into a conversation and starts screaming about privacy and fungibility and, and then all that. And the trench coat. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Runs away. You don't even know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's, it's more than just this, like this word that us Monero people talk about. Like it's, it's a serious real world thing. And it's something that has existed forever. It's always been an issue, but governments can, can just override the issue. But with Bitcoin, because we don't have a government to say, this is fungible. I mean, you can't rely on someone to, to decide Bitcoin is fungible. So just deal with it. Even when there's history, even when there's taint, um, you have to enforce it at the protocol level. I mean, you have to do things that make it so that there cannot be taint or history associated with transactions or with outputs. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's really the focus. It's to outline the issue and then to show people how real world people are being affected by a lack of fungibility. Just kind of bring home that concept. And I kind of, I broke it down into the reason or tool that got people into issues with fungibility. Um, the vast majority of the issues so far have been people using mixers and centralized exchanges. And the centralized exchange doesn't like that they use a mixer. They flag their account, they shut down their account, they confiscate their Bitcoin, um, that kind of thing. So I mean, like I have five of the 25 instances are Wasabi users getting their accounts closed or flagged for mixing funds either before or after using the exchange. Um, even just sending from the exchange to a Wasabi wallet has gotten people in trouble. Um, until what? very, yeah, yeah. Because, and, and this is, I'm not going to get into the whole Samurai versus Wasabi debate, but there are a lot of core issues. I don't know it, but you could. You might want to. What's, what's the outline? The executive <laughs> so the, summary. The outline is Wasabi is a coin join wallet for Bitcoin. So they propose that they provide privacy to their users by allowing them to, to mix funds with other Wasabi users through a central coordinator that in theory cannot see who is who. Um, but there have been lots of, and it's hard to dissect because there's a lot of drama between Wasabi Wallet and Samurai Wallet. It gets messy. But from what I can tell after digging through everything I can find, Wasabi Wallet had a lot of issues with implementation. They had a static um, fee address that they used in Wasabi. So whenever you did a mix, part of the mix was the fee that you paid to be able to mix, and it went into a static address. So anyone looking at a, at a block explorer could see this person mixed, and they used Wasabi because you can see the static fee address. So it makes everything stand out as exactly what it is, which is a Wasabi mix. And it also caused some other issues. Um, they also had implementation issues that apparently caused a lot of address reuse. Um, and they also had no post-mix spending tools. So you could just 
mix all your funds, mix your 10 Bitcoin into a bunch of smaller UTXOs, and at the end, you could just send all funds. And so a lot of people were just mixing all of their funds and then just recombining them to send to their ledger or whatever, which completely defeats the whole purpose and you gain no privacy after you do that. Um, so there's a lot of core issues, I think. It's hard to, again, it's hard to dissect. There's been a lot of drama. But Samurai Wallet is, from everything that I can tell and from talking to people that... I trust, I know we're not supposed to trust people in this space, but talking to people that I trust and dissecting what I can and using both tools quite a bit, um, it seems like Samurai Wallet is a much better coin join implementation. And by far, the if you're going to use Bitcoin, use Samurai Wallet. Like I, 100%, that's really the only way I can suggest anyone use Bitcoin. Um, and I think they do a really good job of making it relatively easy and relatively approachable it's still very complex but it's at least easier than a lot of other projects like join market um but yeah because of those flaws within wasabi they could tell that a user was sending to a wasabi wallet and so they got their exchange account flagged after they just sent from exchange to wasabi wallet which is interesting um samurai is not exempt from issues with fungibility though recently and it, it took a long time for anything to happen with samurai wallet uh users but recently two different users had uh accounts one had a deposit that they tried to deposit into an exchange called bottle pay which i've never used i don't i'm not sure what they are but someone was using bottle pay they mixed friends in samurai and they sent it into bottle pay and bottle pay interestingly returned the funds which they basically laundered the bitcoin for the person because they sent them a new utxo from their own wallet um so they got what is ostensibly a very clean bitcoin utxo at that point um not saying you should do this but in theory if you just keep sending bottle pay your funds from samurai wallet you can get a lot of nice clean exchange utxos um <laughs> but they returned the funds thankfully and just basically said your account's closed don't do this again um and then another person using PaxOS, PaxOS, i don't know how to say that uh their account was frozen when they tried to withdraw to Samurai Wallet and Mix. Um, so they're not exempt from it either. Even Join Market, which is, as far as I know, pretty rarely used, but it's a, it is a way to mix that I think in theory is good, but it's really hard to use. Um, they've had an issue where a person's BitMEX account was flagged months after they withdrew into Join Market. Once they mix funds, BitMEX was monitoring the whole time and they flagged their account right then and asked for tons of KYC info and caused lots of problems. Um, in those cases, I mean, I don't want to necessarily go through all 25 cases on here, but that that type of thing happens all the time. Like, these are only the cases that I've seen in the wild and I wanted to compile these so people could see real-world cases. And then the, the last two sections are ones that are more focused on how fungibility can cause problems at the protocol level. Um, so one section is about compliant mining and virgin Bitcoin. Then compliant mining is what we talked about before, where mining pools will say they'll only mine transactions they deem as good. But virgin Bitcoin is just this idea that newly minted Bitcoin that a miner collects has no history. And so it, it goes for a premium, um, not on exchanges, but over the counter private parties, they'll pay extra for this Bitcoin that is directly from miners. Um, the number is 20% or very large with someone else's quote specifically uh, as far as how much more people will pay. There's not a lot of confirmed cases of that. Um, I've only found two that people have like given, they've given their word that that was going on a lot, 
but I, I haven't talked to anybody who actually bought or sold at a premium um, outside of the, the one miner who said that they constantly were selling at a premium. Um, and then like the latest interesting one is Iran decided that only Bitcoin that's mined within Iran can be used within Iran, which is really, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really odd. Um, I mean, it, it works in theory. You, they're going to have to do obviously chain analysis on every merchant that accepts Bitcoin. Anybody tries to use it, but you can tell that it was mined by a pool in Iran. So it's, it's theoretically doable. It's just a really odd concept that only Iranian, Iranian Bitcoin can be used within uh, Iran. Okay, so so we, we we know about the hash wars, right? Um, we know this, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you only verified transactions. But now, this is something that an authoritative dictatorship has has gone and, and, and flipped on its head. <laughs> I've not thought about that before. What are the implications? Okay, so um, so basically, uh, Iran is utilizing the rest. Wait, no. What 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 are the implications now? So Bitcoin is so you can send money. You can send Bitcoin into into Iran. No, well, I mean you could, but the person couldn't use it within Iran. They can only use Bitcoin that was mined, like that was from a Coinbase within oh, Iran. Right. Okay. So you can't. Okay. They said that it is illegal to pay with Bitcoin. I think the specific one they mentioned initially was like paying for imports, fees or something. But but yeah. then they broadened it today, I think, was when they broadened it and said, you can't use Bitcoin at all unless you're using outputs that were from Coinbase's mined in Iran by Iranian sanctioned, like government sanctioned approved miners. It's a, I mean, and it's, it's a possible future of a whitelisted network. Like the compliant miners that we have right now, it's a blacklist. So they're, they're saying we're not going to mine these transactions that aren't good. If they had a large enough network share, they could say, instead of we're only going to mine the transactions that are good, you could say, we're not even going to just drop the bad ones. We're going to have a whitelist. And if you're one of these entities, or if you're one of these addresses, or if it's one of these outputs, you can transact yeah. and no one else can transact in Bitcoin. And the fact that that's even possible is terrifying. I mean, it, that would require, obviously, more than 51% share of the network. So hopefully we never reach a world where a whitelisting compliant miner has that much of the hash rate. But it's possible because of this flaw in the Bitcoin base layer. Yeah, a whitelisting compliant miner. What kind of hell of hells is yeah. that? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's just, it's nightmare fuel. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right. So what are you working on at the moment? Um, it really depends. I kind of try or, to stay or, flexible. Or do you have got like a day job or what, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't work in the cryptocurrency space. Um, maybe one day I'm, I'm definitely open to it if the right opportunity happens, but, um, I haven't made enough money to not have a day job and actually really enjoy my day job. Um, so I work for a humanitarian aid nonprofit, um, which I'll just, keep nameless for a, a modicum of privacy um but i do it work for them i'm a site reliability engineer by day for for them um helping them build out funnily enough censorship resistant platforms um which was what drew me there it's really really cool opportunity to build out platforms that are for an idea that i believe in and for a company it or not a company amnesty. an organization that matters what it, ha it has to be either amnesty or red cross 
Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can guess. You can guess. Um, but yeah, so that, that's what I do for a day job. I I love that. I love the the mission that I'm helping. Um, I think it's really interesting, and and the work that I'm doing itself too is is interesting and and technical. Um, I'm not a developer by trade, more like a sysadmin. Um, is what I've done throughout my career. I worked in cybersecurity before this um, at a big right. big company. Um, but yeah, that's that's my day job. So, so I, I interviewed I interviewed a, a chap named Patrick Poon, um, who worked for uh, Amnesty International. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. He worked for Amnesty International, and he was telling me some of the the issues that that are faced um, that Amnesty actually faces, specifically with like you know moving money towards people and all sorts of stuff, um, as well as as well as another uh, chap that I interviewed. His name is is Thor, and like the god, and um, he was a representative of the, uh, the the was it the Dutch or the Holland? No, the the Denmark um, Red Cross, mm. and it was surprising to me uh, just how how much work the Red Cross does. Like that is one insane organization, absolutely insane, and it's just like purely human oriented. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, you 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 sailing across the. The Mediterranean, trying to escape a country or something, and you, you, people go out on these boats with like a just this a, a phone number, a Red Cross phone number, and um and a mobile phone number. As soon as they can get into some sort of connection, what they do is they they phone the Red Cross. The Red Cross comes in with the helicopter, but um, now there's so many horror stories that goes on with these sorts of things. And uh, do you advocate? I suppose it's kind of difficult for for dissidents and all sorts of uh, people who are in a difficult situation to set up a Monero node and make Monero transactions. They don't need a node, though. I mean, do you do that? Do you encourage people to use like light light wallets and whatnot to move money around? Or yeah, I mean, again, this is something where the benefits of a private base layer provide other side benefits, like because Monero is so private. By using someone else's node, the only thing that you're revealing is you're sending a transaction. If you're not using Tor or something like that, you're revealing your IP address, obviously, um, or your VPN's IP address or whatever. Um, and in theory, depending on how you do it, you're revealing some information around like when you last synced your wallet, because you have to say like I want to, I want to update my wallet from block two hundred sixty thousand to two hundred seventy thousand. So you do leak some right. information. Um, but you're not leaking known outputs, you're not leaking amounts, you're not leaking who you're sending to, who you're receiving from, anything like that. None of that is known by the node. Um, so I, I definitely would advocate using, there aren't a lot of, there's only really one, what I would actually call a light wallet for Monero, um, and that's my Monero. And I generally stay away from it because to use the service, you have to give them your view key, which lets them see all of your incoming transactions. Everything. Which, I mean, again, then you're just at the still slightly better than Bitcoin privacy level. But that central entity does have a lot of information about your wallet, about when you spend funds, when you receive funds, that they don't have if you just use like a mobile wallet with a remote node. Um, and I would still call that basically it's a full wallet, but you're using a remote node. Um, and that's the situation I would generally recommend to people. It definitely, it can require a lot of time to sync. Um, but if you're just like, if you're creating a new wallet, it's basically instantaneous and then just staying up to date isn't very costly as as far as bandwidth or compute anything like that 
Um, so you definitely don't have to run your own node, and I definitely would recommend that. I've heard a couple really great stories about people in authoritarian regimes using Monero and using it to avoid That's censorship. True. And I don't. I'm I'm still chatting with one of them privately. Um, so I want to I want to okay. wait to disclose that until I'm I'm sure what he wants to share. Hopefully, you're going to write something up for my blog or ah, somewhere else. Ah, this is about in a it. professional context. It's not, no, it's not professional, but it's, it's someone who I just don't want to reveal any info about um, without their okay. permission. So I'll leave that behind the scenes. But there are definitely people using it in authoritarian regimes. And I think it's, it's, it's probably a lot less than people using Bitcoin, I would think, just because name recognition. I mean, most people around the world don't know what Monero is. Um, but I would love to see a bigger push from the community to help dissidents and to help refugees and people who need a way to store wealth, transact, send money back home, that kind of thing, um, give them a way to escape the surveillance that they're normally undergoing. I mean, normally they have serious, serious privacy issues that are constantly surveilled and are tracked by the government that they're either a dissident against or fleeing from. And so something like Monero that allows them to have self-sovereignty to remove the ability for that government to surveil their transactions um, and that obviously as censorship resistance is incredibly powerful so i'd love to see more of that especially as just the name recognition of monero grows um, and trust in the network grows I, I think it's a it's an ideal use um, and as part of that i would love to see community members throughout the world especially when they're in places like the middle east and africa where you have more authoritarian regimes and more things happening run a node that you expose that other people can use um, so that they don't have to rely on some random rich person in America to host a node. Um, they can use something that's much more local, lower latency, um, more reliable, that kind of thing. So I would love to see more of that. I, there's definitely not as much use as I'm sure Bitcoin, that kind of thing has, but I think there's it's a perfect fit for Monero for both wealth storage and transacting. So I would, I would love to see more of that. And I, I think we've already seen a tide shift from Bitcoin to Monero for donations by privacy oriented and FOSS projects. Um, I've been compiling this on another post on my blog, but it's been really interesting to see a lot of projects shift from accepting Bitcoin only to accepting Bitcoin and a lot of altcoins and then to adding Monero and then slowly saying like, just please donate Monero. Like you save me headache, you save yourself headache. And it's been really cool to see that. And these are projects that are not like, they're not cryptocurrency projects. They're just pro privacy projects that see, hey, I can post a static Monero address and I can accept donations while preserving my privacy, the donor's privacy and paying cheap fees as well, which cheap fees is something I don't want to harp on too much because, like you said, that'll change as the network becomes more and more used. There are some things within mm -hmm. how Monero was designed that should keep fees reasonable, but they will definitely rise. I mean, they're, it's not tenable for them to be this low forever. Um, but I think it's been a good shift to see, and I think we'll see more and more of that. I, I've, I've cataloged a couple of those cases of uh, people who are accepting donations getting... Uh, attacked being smeared on so on social media and on n mainstream media because they received a donation from someone to their static bitcoin address and it, like you can't reject like you can't reject a donation at bitcoin and i don't think a lot of like the the mainstream media and world understands how that works so if you have a bitcoin address posted publicly and someone that the world doesn't like sends you money they can see that and you can't reject it so you're just kind of screwed 
Um, and there are ways around that. You could run like, like you could run BTC pay server and generate new addresses for everybody, but that's a lot of overhead just to accept a donation. Um, so it's been cool to see a lot of organizations switching to accepting Monero or accepting Monero proof payments, that kind of thing. And honestly, humanitarian aid organizations that generally are nonprofits that rely on donations as there are crackdowns on different types of that and there's more kind of like political strife and oh, issues around yeah. that having the ability to accept donations it gets tricky with them because normally for a nonprofit, because of like tax laws and that kind of thing you need kyc information essentially you need to know who's donating to you um i'm not sure the legalities around completely anonymous donations that you don't know where they come from i know with like politicians and stuff that can cause problems but i need to learn more about how like ngos and nonprofits work but something like monero opens up the door to truly anonymous donations and ways that they can also shift money into countries that are um, against the work that they're doing or that want to shut down the work that they're doing they can use that to shift money around in a way that they could never do through the legacy banking system or maybe through Bitcoin. I mean, normally you wouldn't be censored doing Bitcoin transactions, but you could be surveilled if you don't do things properly. Um, and mm. in the future, maybe you could be censored, but the surveillance could be a, a problem as well. So I'd love to see the use case of Monero grow in those kind of humanitarian situations, donations, more than just, I mean, like right now we have, like every darknet market is Monero only. Generally now they're, they're all shifting that way, which is a good... It's a good litmus test of how the technology works, but obviously it's not really a good marketing point for anybody who's not cypherpunk, basically. Because telling them that people are buying drugs on the internet with Monero is, it generally doesn't go over too well. Um, <laughs> but it's been a good litmus test, and I'd like to see more and more of a shift into, like, truly everyone can appreciate the positive side of how Monero can impact people. Um, so hopefully that will continue to grow. So what about this, the Zcash versus Monero from a privacy perspective? Yeah. Um, so from purely a privacy perspective, if you use Zcash properly, and I was talking about, talking about this with people on Twitter today because Snowden, who's like super pro Zcash, came out today and again said like Monero's fine, but Zcash is like the better tool. Um, yeah, Which, let's go into this. Go if, into this. if you use it perfectly, it's a great tool. Like Zcash has really good privacy technology. Um, it does so by making some trade-offs that a lot of people aren't comfortable with, like the trusted setup, which if the members who created the trusted setup at both, there were two different ceremonies. And essentially, that's everyone comes together, creates a number, they each have a piece of how it was generated. And if they all destroy the piece then everything's fine. But if they collude and keep the pieces of data that they use to generate this number, they could print infinite Zcash. Um, and so that trusted setup exists in Zcash, and that trade-off allows them to use a different privacy protocol that, if used perfectly, and if used perfectly is basically you only use the shielded addresses within Zcash. So you can use Zcash in two ways, or three ways, really. You can do just Bitcoin, like T addresses is what they're called. It's just using Bitcoin. It's it's literally a Bitcoin fork. There's no differences, really. There's no differences in privacy. That's the way that the vast majority of Zcash users use Zcash because that's the default. That's the way that most wallets default to using it. Um, you can also, you can send from T addresses to Z addresses, which are the private address, 
and you leak a lot of metadata, but that's relatively private. You hide information about who you're sending to. Um, or the third way and the optimal way is you're sending from a shielded address to a shielded address called like Z to Z is a lot of the time how it's referred to. Um, and that provides, it provides really strong privacy guarantees. Um, if used heavily, it can provide really good anonymity set sizes and it hides a lot of data similarly to how Monero hides it in concept, but uh, in a way that provides a little bit more privacy on an individual, on an individual transaction level. Um, and so it's definitely, it's, it's a great tool if used properly. I think the core issues so far have been, there's a corporation behind it. There's people trying to make money on it. There's a dev tax that they've been milking for a long time. Um, they're getting a large- Was it still there? Yeah, they voted to keep it going. They, uh, as in 40, it's, it's, 40 it's, it's, people it's like, voted to keep it going. Yeah, it's like 20%. Yeah, uh, that dev tax is twenty percent. Yep, it was supposed to die out. Nice. They, they all got together and forty people voted and kept it going to keep keep that cash cow going. Yeah, and I'm sure they I'm sure they did uh, separately destroy their shards of of the initial. Uh, Hopefully, I mean material. The nice thing with oh, the trusted yeah, setup, I mean, if one person destroyed it, it's theoretically sound. So you don't need everyone. Like it's, if one person yeah. keeps it, it doesn't actually cause issues. So hopefully there's one person who's legitimate and destroyed it. And then in theory, that protects things. But mm -hmm. it's sketchy. Let's and build a world economy on that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that, that's a trade-off that doesn't have to be made. And it's something they're trying to remove. Um, their next proposed protocol will remove the trusted setup because there have been some advances in cryptography that remove the need for it um so if they actually do that and they actually put it in place that'll definitely be a big win um but the core problem has been they refuse to do privacy by default um from everything i see it's just that they they want to pander to regulators and exchanges and say look zcash yeah. isn't very private down to. you can you can list zcash because it's just bitcoin don't worry about it um and then there's the added privacy for the people who opt in but the it's been really interesting. One of the Monero community members, who's also very active in Zcash, he keeps up with the work that they're doing, and he's been involved in their community for a while. He runs numbers roughly every month about how many private transactions there are in Zcash versus Monero. Um, and basically every month, 95 plus percent of Zcash users don't have any privacy guarantees. They're not using shielded to shielded transactions, they're just using the normal T address, and then a small portion of those are using T address to Z address. So they're getting some privacy, but with a lot of leaked metadata. Um, and it, that just comes down to this concept of, I mean, it's just, it's human psychology. When it's the default, what are most people going to use? They're just going to use the default. Like, yeah, they could opt in and get more privacy. And in theory, it's easy. I mean, it's easier in Zcash than it is within Bitcoin to get privacy. Um, but still, you see 95% of people not opting into it. And because of this need to pander to regulators, Zcash hasn't implemented shielding by default, which is, it's easy. They can just turn it on in a hard fork and be done with it. And then everybody who uses Zcash is, is fully private. And honestly, in that case, it would be a very strong competitor to Monero, and it would be a really good tool. Um, I still would have all the questions around the dev tax and corporation behind it and a lot of the other stuff. But just for someone like you're just using it as digital cash, it would be a very strong tool. Um, there's a lot of, they've also been very 
sly about marketing to try to find ways to talk about Zcash in a way that tricks people, in my opinion, they could be genuine, but that tricks people into thinking things about Zcash that aren't true. And so they've mislabeled a lot of things. Like they talk constantly about uh, zero knowledge proofs, which is just this idea that you can prove something without providing any knowledge of what the thing is to the uh, the other party. Um, And Zcash uses zero knowledge proofs as part of ZK snarks, which is kind of the core of their privacy protocol. Um, And it's a core piece, but Monero also uses zero knowledge proofs. A lot of things use zero knowledge proofs because they're just a really good way to prove data without revealing it. Um, But they've used that marketing that zero knowledge proofs are what make privacy perfect within Zcash. And I think they've just used a lot of language that is confusing, whether intentionally or not. Um, and it, it misleads a lot of people to not understand what actually matters when you're talking about a privacy protocol, um, which has been annoying to deal with. I think thankfully that's kind of, it's going down, whether they're just reducing the way they market things or people are learning what these terms actually mean. Um, but uh, a lot of times it's just using cryptography, naming to confuse people into thinking that a protocol is better. And like I said, Zcash is a really good privacy protocol if you use it properly or if they did shielded only transactions like Monero enforces you have to use privacy within Monero you can't opt out you have to use it in a private manner Um, you can opt out by giving a view key to like a third party if you need to but every time you publish a transaction to the blockchain it's going to be private Um, yeah yeah but but that opting out is opting out into into um, you know uh, revealing data it's not yeah. you know the default is privacy yeah exactly and which that's is, which it, is that's the so correct key. configuration to have yeah it really is i mean it's just it like really we've is. seen the shift from http to https and that's taken so long i mean we're really only now starting to get to the point where we can actually enforce https only and i still run into issues daily where i hit sites that either force you to go through http to https or don't have HTTPS, like it's still a problem because it's not the default and there was no enforcement of a default. I know. But like even HTTPS, it's just it's just totally insufficient when it comes from like a security perspective in these networks. It's just the pipes. I don't, you know, secure the data, damn it. Not the pipes, not the pipes. You just, look, if, if you want to get the data, you just attack the endpoints, right? Mm-hmm. Once I get into that, once I work my way through the seam, then I've got you. I've got you by the short and curlies. You know. A- anyway, like this is a. This is a. Uh, this is. This gets my peeve. This gets me going. This. This particular point. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am one hundred percent with you. As someone who worked in cybersecurity and is big on privacy, the flaws that exist at every level are terrifying. Especially working in cybersecurity for a big company, just to see how, even yeah. on a team that was really good to see how flawed the security of a company who spends millions of dollars every year on security is because like you mentioned before, all of these base assumptions that we've made when building out the internet and when building out these tools, normally we just ignore privacy and we go, Oh, we'll just build that on later. Or we ignore security and go, Oh, we'll just build that on later. And you just have this cascading effect upwards through the application stack where these issues just come back to bite you. And then you have to try to fix them later. And then you try to, and then it, it's just, yeah, it's a nightmare. One thing that I'm, uh, I mean, Monero, Monero is susceptible to bloat, isn't it? You can't, you can't prune the, the chain. 
Yeah, yeah, you can't. So this is something and, I was... And, and wait, 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 wait. And now that we've got a new fucking blockchain called Chia. Oh, God. <laughs> hard, hard disks are going to become like insanely expensive. Thank you, Chia. It does absolutely nothing for green. It, although it markets itself as green. It's, it's just trash. Environmentally friendly. Just ignore the massive pre-mine, the VC-funded portions. Like, just ignore the corporation running it. Just it's yeah, and environmentally those... friendly. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Hard drives don't cost any power at all, and nah, data centers full of storage racks. Yeah, they're not going to have any kind of monopoly there. But um, yeah, I, yeah, that's going to be a nightmare. There's just going to be the Ethereum GPU shortage for hard drives. Hopefully that just dies out quickly and we can get back to cheap SSDs, but thanks Cohen. We'll see. <laughs> um, yeah. So for Monero pruning, so it's a little bit nuanced. I think the, basically the way I understand it is you cannot prune the output set because obviously you don't have known spent outputs. So unlike Bitcoin where you can say, I'm not going to store all of the, outputs that have been spent in the past, I'm only going to store the set of known unspent outputs that I need today to transact a, uh, to create a transaction. Um, you can massively prune down a Bitcoin node to be, I think, like a gig, two gigs at this point to hold the UTXO set. Um, so it, it can be very small, very portable. You still, at that point, you're trusting other things. And if everyone ran a prune node, you can reconstruct the history of the chain. But you can prune very effectively within Bitcoin and within anything that has a UTXO model, you can prune quite easily. Um, in Monero, obviously, outputs are not known spent ever, um, except by the people who are spending them, obviously. But the network doesn't have the concept of known spent outputs. So you can't just prune away outputs that have been spent in the past. You have to keep outputs forever to use as decoys and because you don't know if they're spent or not. Oh. Um, so because of That's that, a good point. yeah, you can only you can still prune away other data, um, and basically what you can do right now in Monero is it's more akin to sharding than pruning. You can get rid of seven eighths of the blockchain and then rely on remote nodes for the few times that you fall outside of the eighth of the blockchain that you have. Um, your node will reach out to other nodes to grab the decoy information that it needs to build the transaction locally. Um, it's not really a, it, it all depends on how you define these words, but it's not really pruning in the sense of Bitcoin pruning, because again, you can't prune away the transaction set, but you can, a, a lot of pruning hasn't been explored as far as what extra data around the transactions can you prune while keeping enough of the data to build transactions in the future. Um, so I'm sure there are ways that we could do better pruning or more efficient sharding, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, but yeah, you always have that caveat of you don't know when outputs are spent, so you can't just delete everything that's a spent output. Um, and there's not there's not a way around that. And obviously, that's a it's a trade off that has massive advantages because you never know an output is spent. So you can do things like ring sigs, where you can say, "I'm one of these eleven. You don't know which one I am, and none of them are known spent. So I have a, a good little crowd to hide in." And then each of those have their own transactional history where they have 11 decoys and as you go down this tree it gets harder and harder to ascertain what path an output actually takes in the network um and that's how you get i mean it's a core piece of how you get fungibility within monero it's the core piece of how you get privacy so 
there's obviously clear advantages to that. But yes, it does reduce the ability for node uh, for people who run nodes to reduce this the amount of storage needed. I mean, it's still this is a, the first article that I wrote for my blog. It was something I've been wanting to write about for a while. Um, was taking this idea of a reasonably private spend across blockchains and comparing how efficient each blockchain actually is when you try to use it in a private manner. Um, because a lot of people compare a regular Bitcoin transaction to a regular Monero transaction. But those are two very different things. A regular Bitcoin transaction is completely transparent. That's There's no coin join. There's nothing. It's completely deterministic. You can see exactly where it came from, exactly where it's going. The addresses on both ends, amounts, all of that. Um, which in some cases can be fine, but as we've talked about a lot, it, that causes a lot of issues that permeate other areas. With a base Monero transaction, you get very strong privacy that protects sender, receiver, amounts. You get no known spent outputs on the network. You get fungibility. You get all of that. So you're comparing those two things is tricky because you're comparing two very different things. Um, so I tried to take this concept of a reasonably private spin, which is what is the spend in Bitcoin when you've done the proper privacy techniques. Um, and this specifically takes a an input that goes into a Whirlpool round, so coin join within Samurai Wallet, the actual uh, coin join round itself, and then a post-mix spend. So you have, you have three transactions to actually perform a single private spend within Bitcoin. Um, and how does that actually compare to Monero? And then I also compared Zcash within there. Um, and it's, I would definitely recommend giving it a read. I think it's, it's a really fascinating look at trying to, trying to compare things that are dissimilar. Um, but essentially, Bitcoin, you end up with about a 2300 byte reasonably private spend. Um, and you're paying a lot of money to get that spend through. I mean, I think on my blog, I estimate 50 sats per V byte, which is low a lot of times these days. Um, and it's still about $50, something like that. I, didn't, I need to go back and look. I try to keep it updated. Um, but when you compare that to a Monero transaction, Monero transaction is 1,400 bytes. So it's significantly smaller for stronger privacy than the initial Bitcoin reasonably private spend. And, and again, fees are tricky when you're comparing a completely saturated network with a not completely saturated network, but you're paying a median of two cents in Monero where you're paying $41 for that private spend in Bitcoin. Um, so I try to bring up this concept. Zcash? So Zcash is it's actually really comparable to Bitcoin in size. Uh, Bitcoin transaction is 2,363 bytes. Zcash is 2,373 bytes. So it's actually the largest transaction size among the three, um, but it's also about two cents per spend. They don't really have any mechanisms to reduce fees in the long run. They, it's, it's Bitcoin, but forked. So they still have happenings. They still have a fee reliance long-term, all of that fun stuff. So they should, they I mean, they need to develop a very strong fee market um, and quite quickly because obviously they're nowhere near the market capitalization of Bitcoin. Um, That's a good point, eh? That's a good point. Yeah, without the decentralization, well, you know, the 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 initial, uh, it's it's a done it's a done deal, it's dead, it's dead. It's and then you think that twenty percent of the block subsidy right now is being taken by the dev yeah. tax too, so you have twenty percent less security yeah. at the same time. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, no, that's a non-starter. These people need to get their shit together if they want to do something. But by that point, by that time, it's already it's already gone. The, I mean, the in theory, really... the community could do something about it, but I don't think there doesn't really seem to be a very active Zcash community, except for the people who are kind of like at the top. Um, I don't see a lot of that, so I'm not sure that there is a community that wants to change things drastically. Um, but hopefully, there is. Hopefully, there's one that I don't see, and there's a lot of discussions going on and changes yeah. happening eventually I, I hope to see that um there have been a couple like a couple forks of zcash that do z to z only so they do only shielded transactions um but they all have their own issues and are mostly just money grabs so um there's not yeah. a lot there yeah. but one, one thing that's also quite nice in, in the manier i did i discuss this with with uh, uh ricardo i can't remember if i discussed this or not but maybe it might be worth going into is it is how how projects get funded in Monero. It's like, you know, from a developer's perspective, um, it, it's a bit of a bitch, you know, you've got these ideas that want to come on that bring value to the community, um, might bring value to the community, but it's difficult to get funding for them. But where, whereas in the Monero world, it, it sounds like there's a lot more of a legitimate process and something to feel optimistic about. Maybe you want to go into that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite parts about Monero. Um, it's something that I fell in love with right away. And it's just, it's a community. It's like Christmas presents, isn't it? <laughs> it's <laughs> it like is, Christmas it a few times a month. Yeah. If you're someone who wants to do something for Monero and get paid, it's, I mean, it's pure gold. It's an awesome system. Um, so it's called the Community Crowdsourcing System. It's essentially a, a donations platform that lets people propose things for Monero. Um, they go through an approval process where people can comment and say, hey, we should fund this, we shouldn't fund this. Um, but at the end of the day, they go, assuming they don't have massive backlash at that point, they go up for funding, and the community gets to decide if they want to fund something or not. You get to decide if you want to fund something or not. Um, and it's completely voluntary donations. There's no dev tax seminario. There's no company behind it driving things there's there's nothing like that so it's it's just the community saying hey we approve of this we want to see it get funded and then people saying hey i'm going to donate my monero to this person to help them to be able to do what they want to do um and everything that is done within monero is done through this donations platform obviously there are people who are building businesses on top of monero that then they fund their own their own work like wallet providers like cake wallet that kind of thing they they make money outside of the monero protocol they make money doing like exchanges within their wallet um but then they're also constantly giving back and donating to these causes and um it's a really cool system i mean it's it's not without its flaws it's it's not a regular job so you don't have like if you want to do this as your full-time thing you don't have benefits you don't have like a a sure payment in the future you like you'll you'll propose this thing for a certain amount of time. Normally they're pretty short, like three months-ish would be kind of the longer side of things to make sure that the community has a chance to kind of reassess and reorient and decide if they want to keep funding something. Um, so if you want to do that full-time, I mean, you're living on a weird three-month kind of hope I get funded again schedule. And I mean, no, no one who has genuinely benefited Monero has not gotten refunded. Like everybody who's been influential in building out the protocol, everybody's who, everybody who's been building out good software on top of it, they always get funded again. I've never seen a proposal fail to get funded. Um, but there's still that 
that lack of surety that you would have if you had a regular day job with benefits and all that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just great to see every time there's a proposal, like somebody who's not a developer at all has been writing up these weekly newsletters that's going to go over news within Monero. They break down uh, different things that are happening. They break down price, transaction volume, all of these kinds of things. Um, and they put forward a proposal. It's open for funding right now. And people are donating to it because they like the newsletter that he's putting out. It makes it easy to keep up with the news within Monero. And so he's going to get funded by the Monero community to keep doing that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating system. It's one I wish more projects did. And it's it's interesting that Bitcoin doesn't have a, a core thing like that. I mean, they have a lot of companies that build on top of Bitcoin and then fund their own developers. And they have some side sponsorship platforms and stuff. But it's interesting that there's not something kind of central community driven like that for Bitcoin or really for anybody else as far as I know. I wonder if maybe it's because Monero is so small and so tight and it's just cypherpunk, sort of like, you know, information is free kind of mentality. Um, and that similar sort of model just cannot work on Bitcoin because there's so many different sorts of people that they just wouldn't get that idea. They just wouldn't get it. Yeah, it would definitely be tricky. I mean, I guess... I guess the way that it works now within Bitcoin is probably how it would work in the future in Monero. You have disparate systems of funding people yeah. who want to work on it, and then those work themselves out. Like a company funds their own developers, and this platform yeah. allows you to fund people who you want to work on Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, those things definitely, they get a lot harder at scale. So it'll be interesting to see how that yeah. grows with Monero. But right now it works really well. Um, and it's just, it's so cool to see people donating their own funds to pay for other people to improve the thing that they love. Um, it's really cool to see that like day in and day out, hundreds of proposals I'm sure over the years have gone through and been funded. And like, there was a really cool one. There's a researcher who worked on Monero for um, I think the past four years, a little bit more than that now. Um, and he's like a PhD level researcher and doing brilliant stuff. He built out a lot of the core protocol that Monero uses. Um, and he, Oh, he's the dude that came up with the bulletproofs, right? Yeah, he was, he was key in... Well, he didn't come up with it. So that was proposed by like Andrew oh. Polstra and other people on Bitcoin. But he actually built the implementation and built it out for how it would actually work within Monero. Um, he was the key mind behind Ring CT, which was the way to bring confidential transactions to Monero. He created ah, that right. whole concept and drove that. And there were others involved with that, but he was kind of a, a primary driver there. Um, but it was cool to see... Well, not cool to see that he got burnt out, but he got burnt out by that system. I mean, four years of unsure funding and working full-time for Monero, I'm sure take a toll on people. Um, he got burnt out, needed some time off, and the Monero community came together and funded a proposal to give him a paid vacation. And people just chipped in. He didn't make the proposal. He had nothing to do with it. The community created the proposal, funded the proposal, and just sent him the funds and said, hey, enjoy a vacation. And that was, that was just an awesome little piece. Fuck him, no. what, is, what, what, what is this dude's name? What is this dude's name? Uh, his pseudonym is Sarang. S-A-R-A-N-G. Sarang. No S-A-R-A-N-G. Okay, so, so he's, he's, uh, he's probably anonymous, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a PhD Shit, researcher. So, and he's, I mean, he's showed his face and stuff. So yeah, he keeps his, keeps his identity. So I don't think I'd be able to get him in on, uh, as an interviewer. An interview no, I'm sure you could. He's come on really? lots of things. Yeah, there's, so there's, like, for okay. instance, there's a really cool series called Breaking Monero that the Monero community made that walks through 
flaws within the Monero community that either can't be fixed now or will always exist in a decentralized system. Um, and it breaks down all the flaws, how you can fix them, that kind of thing, um, or how you can mitigate them for yourself. And he was a key part of that. So he's shown up in that. He's been in lots of interviews, that kind of thing. Okay. okay. He's kind of, this. he's still kind of behind the scenes now, um, kind of coming back from that vacation and time off. And he's, he's just started to do some work for Monero again. So I'd be curious if he'd, if he'd be willing to jump on. But yeah, he's a great guy. Brilliant. He's dedicated so much of his life to building out great privacy tools. And he's contributed so much to the, the ecosystem as a whole. I mean, it's not just Monero. Um, he's built out these tools that could be put in place on Bitcoin, that could be put in place in other areas, and that have also just advanced cryptography in general. So it's really cool to see someone like that who's spent that time working on Monero and then see the Monero community reward him with a paid vacation against his will. <laughs> no, I just find that I just find that so so like like touching to, to, to hear that because you know I've been involved in in cryptocurrency communities of different sorts. Um, where the developers get treated like dogs. Mm -hmm. Like like absolute, you know, just just animals. And I and I was just how how is it that these people can anyway, but so so like hearing hearing this 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 really lovely touching story of like, you know, the developers are actually being treated nicely. It's quite nice. It's, yeah. it's quite good to hear that. Hmm. Let's go into let's go into how you how you got into IT. Let's go a little into yourself as a background, like like where, oh, you can reveal as much information as you wish to. Like I take it that you're on the latitude the the longitude of um, um, S Seattle. It's got to be East Coast, but close. America still, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. So you grew up in in that that part of the world. All all spent all your time there, or. Um, most of it, yeah. I mean, I, I moved around a lot growing up. Um, I've traveled overseas quite a bit, both in my childhood and in my career so far. So I thankfully have gotten to see a lot of the world. Um, I love Asia. I'd love to live in Asia or move out there a lot more. I really enjoyed it. Um, where, where in Asia? Uh, my favorite place was definitely Japan. Uh, I went to Tokyo for work for a couple weeks and loved it. Love um, Japan. been to Hong Kong, been to Shanghai, um, been to singapore i love singapore really nice city uh gorgeous mm. um it's a bit sterile it is it's the, there's always a competition between hong kong and singapore you know really? we're, we're better than singapore <laughs> <laughs> i will say i like singapore more but don't don't shoot well me. you've just you've just been degraded <laughs> <laughs> now you're not gonna hear the episode i could feel it <laughs> To be fair, when I went to Hong Kong, was on the tail end of a three-week trip to Tokyo and then to Hong Kong, working like 80-hour weeks. So that was like, oh, it was the tail end of a really rough trip. So that's probably the main reason I didn't love Hong Kong. Um, well, but I'd love you to go have back. to come out again then. Yeah, you have I'd love to, to go back. Then. Yeah, I've got a nice little community. We'll, we'll, we'll slot you right in there. <laughs> uh, if you'd like a few, you know. <laughs> um, uh, did you ever get out to like Thailand or or Vietnam and places like this, or just just was the more advanced cities? I haven't yet. Mostly the advanced cities, just because all those trips were work trips to Asia, um, so they were more okay. cities where we had a presence. Um, but I'd love to get out to really either Thailand or Vietnam. Um, I'd love to just explore more of Asia. I feel I really connect with 
a lot of Asian culture, I really like interacting with people in Asia. I've had lots of really fun chats and interactions, yeah, like and I just food. love to explore more. Oh, yeah, I love the food. I mean, travel is like 90% food, 10% doing stuff, so... That's true. That's so true. <laughs> All about that food. Oh man, I could just I could eat in Tokyo forever. Some ramen every day, gyoza. Yeah, 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 yeah. So good. I remember walking into one of these. Uh, what are they called? Ichi Ichi I forgot what they were. You know when when you sort of walk in and then like everybody sort of greets you. Come on, you know, like something like that. They all shout at the same time. I was like, Jesus Christ, what are you doing? I was like, drop my bags kind of thing. And they're all sort of laughing. Oh, this guy, Gene, doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> oh, it was fun. It was fun. And also, uh, did you ever do the capsule, capsule hotel um, room things? I did not. Oh, the, One of the, the coffin things. Yeah, yeah. I would be interested to try it. One of the nice parts about traveling with the big company that I worked for is they put me in up put me up in really nice hotels so i was more than happy to oh. stay at the uh like four or five star hotels on their dime it was it was great Ooh, fancy fancy yeah in hong kong i stayed at a hotel i don't remember the name but it's like right on the water they had breakfast every day dumpling shoot my like so much so much good food just devour the breakfast every day it's horrifyingly expensive but i stayed within the limits that the company set uh, i just spent most of it on breakfast because it was so good um well, there's good news. During the COVID times, a lot of these hotels are on like massive discounts. So, well, obviously we can't travel now. So what we do is we do these bloody staycations and we pretend oh. we're in like, you know, like Laos or like, you know, Thailand or something. <laughs> we're like, okay, let's go. I was thinking like okay. a staycation in America is a little different because it's such a massive broad country. Like you can do a ton of stuff, but a staycation oh, in a yeah. city state like Hong Kong is probably a little bit. It's pathetic. We're probably so a just... little bit lackluster. <laughs> drive to the other side of town and have a staycation <laughs> oh fuck it's so bad it's so bad well we went to we went to um uh, discovery bay you should probably know discovery bay is like i mean one of the the islands on the on uh, sort of the outside of things and they've got a hotel there and at least you can pretend you feel like you're somewhere better. else at least yeah you can still see yeah, your house yeah. but you feel like you're somewhere else <laughs> well not quite but yes um, yeah yeah kind of i mean we can't even go to macau without the whole drama of fucking quarantines and whatnot yeah but you guys you guys have had like a bit of a are you in los angeles not los angeles california no the east coast of california but okay more, that on whole the, area. more on the southern end southern end so it's been a little bit more relaxed yeah. thankfully. yeah are you guys coming are you guys coming right with your uh with your with your situation in covid because i know that california was doing some crazy ass stuff i mean like getting very yeah. very authoritarian and stuff yeah they've been uh they've been feeling some authoritarian nightmares for sure with all of their their policing and shutting down people and just gathering in their own homes and shutting down churches and yeah lots of crazy stuff thankfully the southern part of the u.s is a little bit more relaxed um like yeah it's like it's texas, a very different right? story you're referring to texas texas florida south carolina georgia like all those southern states are generally a bit more conservative which normally means they're a little bit more relaxed and have relaxed mask okay. mandates a lot more and most people it's really interesting like if you go into a city you see everyone hyper vigilant about masks like super cautious super scared and then you go outside of the city and everybody's like whatever like i'm i'm not at risk if i get it i get it if i don't i don't like i'm not gonna waste two years of my life because of this um, it's interesting to see that kind of 
paradigm shift between the two parts of America. Because really, rural America is so much different than urban America. It's like, it's a whole different world. Um, but yeah, I think the South has been pretty relaxed. It's been interesting to watch the stats for the states that have no mask mandates or lowered mask mandates not be worse than the states that are authoritarian about it. Um, mm. I know that's a, that's a hot topic, but... Um, oh, is it? Oh, I didn't realize. No, I th in America, it seems to be like, you know, everything is turned to 11. Yeah. Uh, purely just to get, like, attention. Oh, yeah. That's the... That's sometimes I, I get that feeling. But from an outside, from an international perspective, that's, you know, you get the sort of what I just mentioned, but when you actually go to, the, to America, it's quite a different situation. On the boots on the ground is quite different. When you meet when you meet um, folks out there, I went to Champaign Urbana, um, which is like uh, Illinois. Yeah. Um, where else? I went to St. Louis, St. Louis to go see the the um, the solar eclipse. Oh, nice. That was so much fun. That was so much fun. The people there are pretty cool. Actually, I really like them. They're really yeah. cool. They're really sort of laid back and, you know, they don't really give a shit about things. Yeah, America's this weird dichotomy. <laughs> like, there's so much pumped up in, like, mainstream media, and I'm sure in international media, too, that makes it seem like this, like, crazy place. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you the actually Trump get down panel. to meet people yeah. and hang out, and it's, yeah, it's a very different place. Especially, I mean, and I prefer being outside the cities more in, in America. I feel like people uh -huh. are a lot more inviting and genuine and kind and relational and um had a lot more had a lot more enjoyable experiences outside of main cities and in the south too as well i think it's a little bit more relaxed but um yeah it's a very different place to end up even depending on where you go in the u.s it's totally different go to one state go to another yeah. state it's a it's a whole different world so it's weird to have a i'm sure as someone who's living in a small place like hong kong it's very different going into the u.s where someone in North Carolina is living a totally different life than someone in California and has different things around them and different chains and um, different politics, local politics. And it, yeah, there's a lot of variance within America. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely true. Um, I found I was in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Um, there's a lot of scientific research that goes on in that area. Yeah. And I was, I was at NIST, um, to go take a look at some of their, it was a, uh, an ion trap conference. I popped on over to that in five days. It was absolutely fantastic. But Boulder, Colorado, man, like some of the, some massively beautiful, beautiful mountain range. Uh, you know, you get on your m mountain bikes and just, yeah, it's, it's such a, it's such a pleasant experience out there. And, and people are so sort of chilled and laid back. And then, then you think about like what what goes on in California. Yeah, it's just <laughs> yeah. I, I see what you mean. Uh, one place I would like to go to is um, I'd like to go to Texas for some yeah. reason. This has never really sort of like been on my my mind, but it's it just it, I find it interesting that like everybody sort of like walks around with guns. This is the impression <laughs> I get, and I don't know if it's true, but I mean, everybody seems to walk. If you're outside of the cities, it's probably relatively true. I mean, probably most people are concealed carrying at the least, and you'll probably see open carry. And I mean, people aren't like walking around with rifles and that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, it's oh, definitely really? it's a very different culture in the south. Why? I love Texas. Um, but why? Yeah, it's really good but why do they need guns everywhere? For some people, it's just personal protection. I mean, concealed carry is a great way to 
carry away to protect yourself well, in case of robbery of animals? or carjacking or oh, it's no tea. people yeah people okay. yeah yeah it's just a way okay. to keep yourself safe and be able to handle situations you wouldn't be able to handle otherwise um and then i mean but really the vast majority of people who own guns they just own guns because they're fun like i love guns i own multiple oh, I, I love shooting them it's just a really fun hobby and sport um there's a lot of variants like you can have tons of different types of guns ammunition build your own guns buy pre-made ones it's a it's just a really cool hobby so and i mean there's also market. oh yeah a massive market yeah gun sales yeah. are huge in the u.s and i mean the other piece too is hunting hunting is really popular in the u.s um really mm-hmm. all across it so a lot of people have guns just to be able to go hunting every every season deer hunting turkey do you go hunting i never have i want to um I love guns. Okay. A good shot. I like like staying up on that, but I've never actually gone hunting so far. But so do you do it for more like accuracy stuff, or do you have like a rifle that? Yeah, I'm shooting at ranges mostly. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Hopefully, I'd love to have enough land one day that I can just shoot in my backyard. That'd be the goal, so I don't have to worry about going to a range or paying for a membership fee or something. But um, yeah, mostly just accuracy training with it, so that I'm proficient in case kind of shit hits the fan that kind of thing um oh god so you all want to be navy seals <laughs> <laughs> i understand i am not a navy seal I, I don't have those kind of fantasies but i want to if i'm going to use something that could kill somebody i want to make sure that i know what i'm doing with it and that i'm safe and i can handle it properly and that when i do it with other okay. people i mean i love shooting with family members with my wife because it's a ton of fun i want to make sure that i'm that proficient in the thing that i'm going to be doing that terrifies me. Absolutely terrifies me. And I'm like, oh my God. Oh, Jesus. Going to America. Like I would be looking around. Okay. I come from South Africa where, where, you know, people carry guns and whatnot. And I look for the yeah. bulges or for knives and, and guns. And, and I avoid those places because it's one of the main reasons why I'm here in Hong Kong. Because here I walk around, you know, I can be like, I can be drunk on the streets at three o'clock in the morning and I know nothing's going to happen to me. <laughs> A woman could be drunk on the streets at three o'clock in the morning, and I know nothing's going to happen to her. The probability is extremely, extremely low. But I um, don't know about America. Like, if I'm drunk on the streets, three o'clock in the morning, maybe I'm a bit stroppy. I don't know. Maybe I end up with a bullet in my head. Huh. I, th- I think it's a common misconception. I think when, you, this, com- well, yeah, really? when you come from a culture that isn't as kind of gun-friendly as America. Um, and really, I mean, I'm more talking about rural America. Like if you go to cities in America, that's going to be much more rare. I mean, there, there's probably going to be people who are concealed carrying, but you'll never know it. No one's going to open carry, nothing like that. Um, so it would be much more tame and you wouldn't even know that it's a thing in cities. But if you're in rural areas, I mean, yeah, a lot of people are concealed carrying, some will open carry, that kind of thing. But you, you have to think the people who do that, I'm sh- there are bad people who do that, I'm sure. But by and large, the people who do that are people who are going to the range every week, who are spending tons of time with it, who are very proficient in gun handling. They're proficient, hopefully, in self-defense in other ways. So if something happens, they don't have to just resort to using a gun. Um, but it's really, it's it's not as scary as it sounds. Both guns aren't as scary as they sound, and the people who own them and use them for self-defense aren't that scary. It's There's a very much a culture of, it's a last resort. Like it's, and there's, there's tons of laws around it as well. And this is one of the good use cases for laws and regulation. If you shoot somebody, even if it's perfectly self-defense, and even if there's 
easy evidence that nothing happened that was like askew or weird, you're still going to go to prison and they're going to investigate things. They're going to go through a whole trial process. There's going to be a ton of checking to make sure that it was a legitimate use of self-defense and different states have different laws. Um, but there's a lot of things that go around it in the culture of how to handle guns, of how to handle a gun in self-defense. There's a lot of training in order to get like a concealed carry permit. You have to go through a long course. You have to prove you're proficient on the range. Um, you also then are giving up all your info to the government saying, I own a gun and I'm using it for self-defense. So you also have some other okay. issues where like if you get stopped by a policeman and you're concealed carrying, you have to announce it right away. You have to make sh make it clear where the gun is. Like, There's a lot of legislation and regulation around how it can be used. And even using it in self-defense, you have to be very cautious that you're doing it and it's necessary and it's the only way out. Like it needs to be a clear situation of this was the only way I was going to survive this moment and I used it in self-defense. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's normally the way people approach it. I'm sure there are bad eggs just like there are in everything else, but I feel much yeah. more safe knowing that someone has their concealed carry and goes shooting regularly and understands how to use that than I would if neither of us had a concealed carrier or weapon because there are other situations i mean hopefully nothing ever happens but there are other situations where someone gets road rage they smash your car you pull out to figure out license information and and they just run at you with a baseball bat or something or there are those situations oh. where like it happens and obviously that's never happened to me i've never been in those situations but it's okay. good to have a way to defend yourself in those situations and i like that that's an option um but obviously, it's one that there needs to be a lot of due diligence, and people need to be properly trained if they're going to be able to carry a weapon yeah. for self-defense and yeah. all that yeah. jazz. Now, what about your cops? Because, like, on an international stage, when we look at when we look at American cops, I must admit it it looks quite looks quite scary. What's going on there? I, I have a question now. Why do why do people always run away from the cops? When the <laughs> cops want to arrest you, you just get down on your fucking knees and 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 just just get down and just why do people run away? Because like, like that's, it's, it's a great way to get shot. <laughs> exactly. Like great yeah. way to get shot. Exactly. Like, I, I think there's two. You, okay, just, uh, sorry, as, as, yeah. as, a, as a foreigner, as a foreigner, when I look at this, it's like, like even I can see that if I'm a trained, even if, even I'm not that much, that well trained a cop, like those dudes, like if you're going to start running away, you're not listening to what I'm saying. You're not listening to what I'm saying. And the probability of you carrying a concealed gun is maybe high, you know, and, and I'm going to go home to my family, no matter what. And if you suddenly turn around, dude, you could have a weapon on you. Yeah. Like, like, okay, maybe you can expand to me. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm opening up a hornet's nest. I don't know what I'm It's doing. definitely a hornet's nest, but I'll, I'll dive into the hornet's oh, nest it? a little bit. Um, I think it's, it's kind of a twofold problem. Um, I think there are definitely legitimate concerns with the militarization of the police. Um, there's a lot of misuse of access to military equipment and a lot of kind of more authoritarian shift in how police can operate and how the government uses police. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of that with everything since like the, I'm sure you heard the January 6th kind of capital no, raid on the yeah. Capitol, the stuff that happened there, that crazy day. Um, after crazy, that, man. we've seen a lot more of that ramping up security around the Capitol all the time, like a lot of stuff there. And I think that trend has not helped instill 
belief and trust in the police. Um, but I think the, for me, by far the main driver is people in mainstream media and politicians and influential people trying to use police violence as a way to gain a platform. Um, and there are definitely issues uh-huh. with police violence. There are definitely issues with racism that have happened. There have obviously been really bad cases of that. Um, and there has been lots of issues with racism in our country for many years. But that said, I think a lot of the problem is mainstream media and politicians really trying to use that as a weapon to increase their political power and increase their political capital. And what that does when you instill in people the idea that the police are bad and they're out to get you and they'll shoot you, especially when you hype up cases of police violence and you talk about them more and you don't give proper you don't give proper uh, kind of due diligence before talking about cases and that kind of thing. I think you you end up with a lot of people who are fearful of the police when they shouldn't be necessarily. And in some cases, you should be fearful of the police. Like I said, there have been lots of cases of police abuse, but I don't think that's rampant or like the norm. Um, but when you instill in people this idea that the police are out to get you and they're constantly shooting people and that they they want to use deadly force whenever they can, I mean, what are you going to do if you believe that the police are trying to kill you or want to kill you and they're arresting you? You're probably going to run away or resist (laughs) arrest. And I mean, if that is true that that's happening, then yeah, that's probably the safest bet. Just try not to be there. But I think it's not as systemic as people talk about. And so there's this false fear that's created and it leads to a lot more people getting killed by police and it leads to a lot more police getting killed by people. Um, because people are fearful and hateful towards the police because of things that have happened and things that they've been told have happened that maybe didn't happen the way they've been told. And then police are obviously on edge because they know that people think that they're out to get them. Police are getting gunned down in the streets too. People are doing drive-bys on police, yeah. killing them. And it just creates this ever-building circle of mistrust. And so you have those cases where people, you're like, hey, just like, you're getting pulled over because your taillight's bad and he's frisking you. Like, maybe just stand there and let him do what he needs to do and go on your way with your your traffic ticket or whatever. And people run because they're scared of the police and then the police are on edge because they're scared of people shooting them. So the guy runs yeah. and puts his hand in his waistband and maybe he has a gun, maybe he doesn't. You don't know as the policeman. There's, there's a lot of nuance there. I mean, I don't want to get super political, but I, there's a really good channel called Donut Operator on YouTube. Um, I think he has okay. really insightful information about police violence he like breaks down the body cam footage from incidents with the police he breaks down a lot of ideas with how police operate as an ex-policeman himself um and so i've, I've learned a lot that's quite that. useful i think yeah it's very useful. I, because this this one thing my mom of 78 years old we got on a call uh you know uh, and and she was like do you know what happened in america she She's a great fan of following what goes on in America, and she she really doesn't like Trump. But every every time our conversation was always Trump would be involved in there. I don't know why she was so obsessed. Anyway, there was a situation of of cops, cops uh, um, telling a, a, a soldier, a, a guy in a, a dude in, in camouflage, um, to get out the car, and and this this the soldier was like, you know, he had his hands out the thing and he's like, I don't want to, t- I don't want to put my hands inside because if as soon as I do that, you're going to shoot me. Like, these are, these are both peacekeeping forces. 
the different peacekeeping forces and one of them uh, and, and the police had two cops with guns trained on that fella what whatever you guys are doing it's wrong <laughs> whatever's happened there that the two peacekeeping forces are, are you know the dude's got what, what how did that do you know what i'm talking about this particular story i haven't heard about that case specifically um i mean there's okay. been a lot of really messy cases he got maced in the face eventually and he was like like i'm some sort of lieutenant or something i don't know what he was yeah no i don't i don't know what happened with that one i think the main thing i will add is in any of these situations where you hear something someone's telling you there's police violence or there's this yeah, yeah. kind of cases happening just do your own research I think almost okay. every time where I take the time to dig in, and I'm, I mean, you're not in the U.S., so I'm speaking more to people in the U.S. who this affects daily oh, okay, or regularly, okay. but, um, and you, you can too, just so you can have a more accurate view of what's going on, but just review the facts. There's almost always body cam footage that's released later. There's almost always police statements mm. and eyewitness statements that are released later that you can look at and see what actually happened because normally the way that people are seeing these things is they're seeing the viral 10 second clip that has no context and just oh, shows someone getting shot down and you have no idea what happened before after why that was happening and a lot of times once you learn the context you learn why the police had their guns drawn why they were coming at this person aggressively when i mean normally yeah. when there's like a traffic stop the cop's never gonna pull his gun nothing like that but if maybe you have a warrant out for your arrest and they know that you're violent or they're there because there's a domestic abuse complaint or there's a lot of scenarios where the context builds a platform for you to actually figure out what's actually going on. Um, and a lot of people just don't take the time to dig into what's actually going on. And I would just, so yeah, just say whatever, whatever you believe and whatever you think is true, if don't let people persuade you with no context and short clips of video, just do your own research later. And that's what I like about this this guy, Donut Operator on YouTube. He waits to put out any content until they're till the information is out, until he has context, until he has police reports, till he has body cam footage. He waits until he can put together a comprehensive picture of what happened as far as he mm. can tell from what's public. And then try to figure out like why did the police do this? Why did the person do this? what actually happened in this interaction and there's a lot of interesting stuff there and some of the cases are just terrible and they're awful they're racist or they're angry violent cops or they're people who are trying to pull guns on cops and there's a lot of situations that are just bad but there's also a lot of situations that get spun up to be a lot worse than they actually were in reality mm -hmm. and a lot of times it was completely justified and makes sense when you know what was actually happening so it's tricky that's very much a political can of worms especially in the u.s that's constant debate mm -hmm. but yeah 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 how's how's biden coming along now <laughs> while, while we're on a political front how's biden coming along uh, have you guys all settled down now are you more happy with this this dude i don't know that many people are happy but some people are happy i don't know the country is incredibly divided yeah <laughs> If nothing else, money printer Cooper. That is definitely happening. Ugh, they love their they love their printing. Inflation is going to be nightmarish. I'm glad I have some cryptocurrency and have some way to uh, to opt out of that system. It's pretty yeah, incredible. If you look at all the countries, like at 2020, all the countries across the world just go poof. 
They're oh, just yeah. not breaking away on the amount of money that they're printing. Turkey is unbelievable. Erdogan has gone absolutely insane. He's printed the shit out of his currency. He's turned the currency into a toilet paper, you know, and, and basically banned Bitcoin because people are turning to Bitcoin in the droves. So, so, and not only that, but he's also the kind of fellow that, that alienates himself from people that help him. He asks people to help him and then he talks behind their back and talks shit about them and then they turn their back on him and then now he's got nobody. So it's like, yeah, the, the people in Turkey are, are they're, they're done for. They're done for. Seems with, like a really bad situation. Media. I mean, it's crazy yeah. how much impact that kind of economic control can have. I mean, everyone always thinks yeah. like that can never happen here, but it keeps happening in other countries. It could happen in the US, it could happen in South Africa, it could happen in Hong Kong. Like, if things yeah. progress, it's certainly a possibility. Hopefully it never happens. I never wish that on anyone. I don't, I don't want a country to suffer from hyperinflation just to prove the point of yeah. bitcoin or monero or anything like that but hopefully I, I think it i think it has been a wake-up call for a lot of people um just to give them the the chance to go something's wrong here like maybe we need a way to opt out of this and i think it's opened a lot of eyes um at yeah. least in my circles i've heard a lot of people talking about things that would never have been talked about before covid hit and inflation happened and money printer gober there's an element of, there's, there's a side of me, the darker side of me that's saying, am I going to be seeing cannibalism with my own eyes? Really? Escalated quickly. Like, like there's, yeah, that, that escalated quickly. <laughs> 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 no, there's a side of me that's actually thinking this because like, like we already know what happens when a currency, when a country goes to, to shit. We know, like, okay, Ukraine was a different story with, with Stalin because, you know, Stalin just basically took all the, all the, all the, all the resources, all the food out of there and, and sent Ukraine into this massive famine. Millions upon millions of U Ukrainians died. Yeah. You know, um, cannibalism was, 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 was a survival strategy, basically. You'd eat your dead brother um, kind of thing. And, um, yeah, we've gotten very dark. Sorry about that. <laughs> Things went downhill quickly. But, no, I mean, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of but, big negative results if you destroy an economy. That's just that's the way things work. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So the the penetration of cryptocurrency of Bitcoin on all these things is nowhere near. Is nowhere near is what needed. But the thing is that maybe adoption could go really go quickly if that's the case. I yeah, I hope so. Anyway, I mean, no. I've heard some tale of these countries that are having hyperinflation seeing demand for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies go through the roof because it's the only way to opt out, really. Um, and I think especially for something that's usable as a method of exchange as well, there's a lot of value in having a way to not only store wealth, but also transact in and out of your country or the country that your family's still in, because a lot of times families get separated, some flee, some stay. So having ways to be able to transact in and out and avoid capital controls and censorship, that there's a lot of value there. I, I think as if this train continues going the way it seems to be going, um, I think a lot of people will hopefully wake up. I mean, we can't make them, and I don't want to see people suffer because of that, but hopefully people will wake up and kind of keep an eye and ear open and stay open to the idea of opting out into 
something else, and cryptocurrency is really about it, specifically Bitcoin and Monero. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Right, what else? What else is there? What else is there? can we sort of go into? Not much. We sort of touched on a, a good few subjects. We've got to go nicely political. Um, <laughs> anything else? Can where, how can people reach out to you? Yeah, um, probably the main way is Twitter or Matrix. Um, I'm on Matrix quite often keeping up with Monero community and other privacy-focused communities of the projects. Um, all of my contact info is on my blog, sethsimmons.me. And then if you go to About Me, you'll see different ways to contact me there. Um, I can also share them with okay, you later okay. if you want to include them in show notes or anything. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Mo most of the content I put out will be either Twitter or my blog. And if I put out anything on my blog, obviously I'll share it on Twitter as well. So the easiest way to just keep up with what I'm doing is follow on Twitter. But if you want to chat one-on-one, -on -one, I'm always open to that. Excellent. Excellent. Seth, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for uh, holding my hand through this uh, privacy debacle. That was fun. I love this. I love this format. Just more relaxed conversation and seeing where it ends up. Yeah. I think it's really helpful for yeah. for me and hopefully for the viewers too to, to be able to learn a little bit and learn a bit more about each of us too. It's fun. Excellent, mate. And next time on, I'm on the East Coast, beers. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. And you take me to the shooting range. Yeah, I'll show you. It's fun. It's not daunting. It's fun. I don't know, bro. I don't know. Have you got one of those like Magnum forty fives or whatever? Whatever. What, what do, what do you, guns. What Mostly uh, like I have an AR fifteen that I built. Um, it's really fun. Oh, it. I know, but it it has this picture from the media that makes it seem like this terrifying, daunting thing. But it's really so just you a go really into fun cinemas gun to shoot. and shoot people up. But yeah, that's what every AR-15 owner does. So, yeah, you got it. You got the narrative. You got it down pat. <laughs> oh, dude. Okay, man. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Seth. It was fun. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> okay.